Good morning, everyone from Washington, D.C. Poppy is off this week. Pamela Brown is here. Let's get started with five things to know for this Monday, July 10th, 2023. Parts of New York recovering from a once in a thousand year flood event. West Point getting nearly eight inches of rain in just six hours. At least one person reported dead. President Biden is in London meeting with the U.K. Prime Minister this morning. He will also meet with King Charles before heading to Lithuania for a high-stakes NATO summit. And a manhunt underway in Pennsylvania for a murder suspect who escaped from jail. Officials described the man as, quote, extremely dangerous and a survivalist who can live in the woods. All right, so parents, listen up to this one. Senator Chuck Schumer calling on the FDA to investigate prime energy drinks. Schumer says he wants the agency to look into how the highly caffeinated drink is marketed to kids. And a Russian teenager has reached the round of 16 at Wimbledon. 16 years old, Maria Andreeva is the youngest player to do so since Coco Golf in 2019. CNN This Morning starts right now. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Pamela. Good, Good morning, to be in Gracie. D.C. Good to be with show. you. And it's happening right now. There's yeah. live news happening at this moment. President Biden is kicking off that high-stakes trip to Europe with a first visit to London. Just moments ago, he arrived at 10 Downing Street for his meeting with British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak ahead of tomorrow's big summit with NATO leaders in Lithuania. After this meeting, President Biden will be heading to Windsor Castle to meet face-to-face with King Charles for the first time since his coronation. We have team coverage. Nick Robertson and Arlette Sines are outside Downing Street. So Arlette, let's start with you uh, with this meeting with the UK Prime Minister. What do we expect to come from this? Well, Pamela, President Biden is meeting at this moment in 10 Downing with British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, the president, uh, telling reporters that they have a rock-solid relationship. So much of the relationship between Biden and Sunak has centered around the support that in unity they've shown towards Ukraine amid this war against Russia. Now, the two leaders are sitting down ahead of that consequential NATO summit. So uh, officials say this will give them an opportunity to discuss uh, the war in, in Ukraine and also further the support that they can offer. But it also comes as President Biden recently approved sending controversial cluster munitions to Ukraine, a decision that puts him at odds with many allies, including the United Kingdom. Now, the concern about these cluster munitions is that they can scatter bomblets over large areas and they can pose significant threat to civilians. But President Biden, in an interview with our colleague Fareed Zakaria, explained the reasoning for why he decided to send those munitions at this moment. It was a very difficult decision on my part. Uh, and by the way, I discussed this with our allies, discussed this with our friends up on the Hill. And uh, we're in a situation where Ukraine continues to be brutally attacked. This is a, this is a war relating to munitions and uh, the running out of those, that ammunition, and we're low on it. And so what I finally did, took the recommendation of the Defense Department, to not permanently, but to allow for in this transition period where we get more 155 weapons, these shells for the Ukrainians. 
Now, Sunak over the weekend speaking to reporters noted that the United Kingdom is one of over 100 countries that have signed onto a convention that prohibits the production and distribution of cluster munitions. These countries are also discouraging the use of that type of weaponry on the battlefield. The White House has tried to downplay uh, these uh, the comments from, from Sunak simply saying that he stated the legal position and they are arguing this will not present a fracture in the alliance. But all of these uh, topics are certainly to be discussed as they are heading in to that NATO summit tomorrow. You know, Nick, there, there's always a lot of discussion about the special relationship between the U.S. and the U.K. There are certainly geopolitical elements of this meeting, of this visit. But from a domestic political perspective, what's at stake here for the prime minister? Yeah, I think there's a perception that he's getting it right with the United States at the moment, you know, irrespective of the decision over cluster munitions. Um, that That is something that's getting discussed. And of course, the prime minister was asked about that as he went into number 10 uh, with President Biden. But uh, the, the relationship is seen as much better than it was with uh, Liz Truss, who was briefly prime minister, Boris Johnson, before that. And the sense even here was that this is somewhat chaotic. Obviously, that was uh, well, there was a perception of that in Washington as well. But I think, you know, when you look at the relationship here, there's also another dynamic that's an uneasy one for the British Prime Minister. That would be over Northern Ireland. You know, President Biden is seen in the UK, particularly among the, the uh, pro-British unionists of Northern Ireland as being very pro-Irish and therefore not in and, and therefore not taking into account their interests in Northern Ireland. Thinking back to that brief meeting that President Biden had with Rishi Sunak back in Belfast a couple of months ago, um, if that comes up as a topic of conversation, I think the Prime Minister is going to have to say, well, the dial hasn't really shifted on that core issue of getting compromise from the unionist politicians in Northern Ireland. So I think that's an issue where there would st the, 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 the Prime Minister would like to feel he has better alignment uh, with President Biden, and that would help perception in the UK about the relationship as well. All right, we'll be watching it all very closely. Nick Robertson, Arlette Signs, thank you both. And the next stop for President Biden is Windsor Castle. That's just about 20 miles west of London. He is set to have his first engagement with newly crowned King Charles III. CNN's Max Foster is live in Windsor. So, Max, President Biden, he was not at King Charles's coronation. Uh, we know climate change, of course, is set to be part of the discussion. The two men have a passion for climate change. What more are you learning about this one-on-one? -on -one? Well, it's interesting. The monarch's role is really to sustain that uh, special relationship when there are divisions perhaps between the politicians and there are no doubt tensions as uh, you've been hearing between the UK and the US, particularly on Ukraine, how quickly Ukraine should become a member of NATO, how President Biden apparently uh, objected to Britain's nomination for the head of NATO, and of course the cluster munitions that you were hearing there, Arlette, talking about. Uh, so the idea for of this event really is to show that the longevity of the relationship between the US and the UK is still there. So you'll see some ceremonial, you'll see President Biden come in, he'll receive a guard of honour up in the quadrangle in Windsor Castle. Uh, they'll play the national anthem, the US national anthem. Then they'll go inside. And it's interesting what you say about the environment, because they're going to have a discussion about climate and the environment. There's going to be ministers there, in fact, uh, for that. And that's really interesting, because we were never told about the discussions between Queen Elizabeth and other heads of state. It was always completely confidential. So for the first time, we're getting an insight into those moments. And for many, that is a political issue. All right, Max Foster, thanks so much.
Also this morning, more than 25 million Americans across the Northeast are under flood alerts after deadly and devastating flash flooding swept through New York. Just north of New York City, parts of the Hudson Valley saw a once in a millennium levels of rain. This was the scene in Highland Falls, New York, where a woman was reportedly swept away by raging floodwaters and drowned while trying to evacuate from her home with her dog. Rescue teams using a boat to save this man who was stranded in his house. You can see the piles of tree and trees and debris pushed up against the homes. Now, the storm dropped nearly eight inches of rain at the U.S. Military Academy of West Point. Flooding so bad that people had to swim out of their cars after becoming stuck. And now the storm system is pushing north and bearing down on New England. Polo Sandoval is live in Rockland County, New York. And Polo, what's the situation there right now after devastating night of rain. Well, Phil, good morning to you. You'll find New York State authorities really scattered throughout the region right now as they respond to this sort of post-devastation mode. In fact, this is as far as we can take you. We have seen drivers detoured here just off the Palisades Interstate Parkway all morning. If you've driven it, you know it's a very busy corridor, especially on a Monday morning. You mentioned just a little while ago one of the hardest hit areas just north of here where floodwaters proved deadly last night. People's doors. Oh my God. Historic flooding slamming southeastern New York on Sunday. It's up to my knees. I know. Orange County officials say at least one woman died after she was swept away in floodwaters in the town of Highlands. We have an emergency situation here in southern Orange County, in particular the Highland Falls area. A state of emergency was declared in Ontario and Orange County Sunday by New York Governor Kathy Hochul. In Orange County, Hochul and the Orange County executive said it was due to, quote, life-threatening flooding and power outages to more than 12,000 homes. Throughout the county, we have flooding situations and emergency calls. If you do not need to be on the road, stay off the road. At West Point, intense rain recorded there totaled more than seven and a half inches in six hours, according to preliminary data from NOAA. A CNN analysis of NOAA's historical rainfall frequency data indicates this would be a one in a 1,000 year rainfall event. Also in Orange County, the city of Cornwall issued a no travel advisory due to numerous flooded roadways, stranded vehicles, water rescues, mudslides, downed trees and debris. In Rockland County, flooding stranded vehicles. Police say they've been assisting local fire departments and EMS helping to get stranded motorists to safety. New York State Police urging people to avoid the Palisades Interstate Parkway due to heavy flooding and washouts. And it's not just New York State feeling the brunt of it. On Sunday, Vermont Governor Phil Scott declared a state of emergency. Friday, heavy rain washed out a portion of Route 4 in Killington. And back here in the Hudson Valley, a slight break in the clouds, which will undoubtedly provide at least some relief for folks here in the region. But the threat far from over, Phil, with still about 25 million Americans under uh, some sort of flood threat, flood-related alert, or at least a flood-related threat, uh, still a moderate risk for excessive rain in the Northeast through Tuesday, Phil. All right, pull us out of all live for us in Rockland County. Keep us posted. Thank you. And CNN meteorologist Derek Van Dam joins us now. So, Derek, how much more rain are we expecting? You just look at those poor folks and all that they're going through. 
Yeah, another six inches is possible, so that could top some of our totals over a foot. And we've seen the success of water already turning some roadways into literal rivers. And there's a reason the National Weather Service has this slogan, turn around, don't drown, because six inches can actually stall a vehicle. Twelve inches of water can float a lot of vehicles, but 24 inches of rushing water can actually sweep away a full SUV. Just take a look at some of these images coming out of Ontario County, for instance. This is upstate. New York. I mean, there is uh, a perfect reason why we talk about turn around, don't drown, because that car has been completely stalled out by the water. Now, West Point talking about that near one in 1,000 year event still needs to be confirmed, but that's nearly eight inches of rain in less than 24 hours. There's other locations with equally as impressive rainfall totals. We're focusing in on northern uh, Vermont and upstate New York. That's where we have our flood warnings in place. There's a radar really lighting up like a Christmas tree this morning. Pam, yeah, Phil. tell me about it. Derek Van Dam, thanks so much. Okay. And President Biden telling CNN Ukraine's membership in NATO is not up for discussion until the war with Russia is over. The impact of those comments just ahead. And there's new pushback from Republican presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis, who he's blaming for the perceived struggles with his early campaign. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Maria, these are narratives. The media does not want me to be the nominee. I think that's very, very clear. Why? Because they know I'll beat Biden. But even more importantly, they know I will actually deliver on all these things. This is not something that, um, you know, I ever expected to just snap fingers and all of a sudden, you know, you win seven months before anyone happens. You got to earn it and you got to work. And it requires a lot of toil and tears and sweat. And we're going to do that. That's Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, toiling, tearing, sweating, blaming the media as he struggles to put a dent in former President Donald Trump's growing lead. Now, despite his best efforts, polls show he still remains a very distant second uh, in second place to the former president in the 2024 presidential race. Let's bring in CNN senior legal analyst Laura Coates, CNN political analyst Margaret Talov, and CNN correspondent Kristen Holmes. Um, we were having way too much fun during the break. Uh, I don't want to carry that over into this. So Should we talk take about this, it right now? Bear, no, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> um, Kristen, I want to start with you because you're on the trail. You're talking to voters. You're covering these campaigns. You're talking to campaigns behind the scenes, too. This idea that this is a media issue that Ron DeSantis has. What's your read on that? Well, I mean, I obviously love some political gaslighting. That's what we see here. I mean, the polls are the polls, and those are actual factual numbers. And as we've seen, the more he gets out there, he's started to drop in those numbers. Now, if you talk to people close to him, his team, they say it's because they believe he still doesn't have that name recognition, that name recognition that Donald Trump has, that he needs to get out there more. But when you talk to voters who have met him, a lot of them say they're just not sure. And there was a big hurrah for him ahead of time. Hang on one second. I just want to take you guys to live pictures. We'll get back to the politics. You see President Biden just finished his meeting with Prime Minister Rishi Sunak at uh, 10 Downing Street, getting into the beast, the presidential limousine right now. Uh, Should be heading over to meet with King Charles at Windsor Castle. So we're going to keep an eye on this. You're looking at those live pictures. President stopping in London today, heading out to Windsor for his first meeting with King Charles since the coronation before he heads off into that major NATO summit. So we're keeping an eye on that. We're talking about politics as well. Obviously, not just uh, the U.S. president uh, heading into a significant uh, international summit at NATO, big uh, bilateral visit here with the prime minister, but also a 2024 re-election candidate already at this point in time. Sorry, Kristen, I interrupted. No, 
but I do want to note one thing. It's still really early. We haven't even gotten to the debates yet. I mean, there's still an opportunity for him to have another breakout. He started out really strong, but people didn't really know him. They were looking for an alternative to Trump, and people are still looking for an alternative to Trump. Right, and, you know, he, he's blaming the media, right? It's never the candidate's fault when the polling's bad. It's exactly. always the media, exactly. right? But it's interesting because there's reporting out there that he's also looking at a media, a shift yes. in media strategy <laughs> where he's going to be doing more interviews uh, with the mainstream media. But, Margaret, how do you see it? What do you think is preventing him from making bigger strides right now? Well, first of all, I think blame the media is a tactic that members of both parties have used when it serves them, but it works particularly well uh, with Republican audiences because there's such a disparity, right? Uh, the latest Gallup numbers are something like 70% of Democrats essentially trust the mainstream media to get it right or to try to be trustworthy when it comes to news. 14% of Republicans. DeSantis's problem, though, is that it's Republicans who aren't favoring him. This is not like a swing voter problem. This is not people who are turning to, um, you know, neutral news coverage. These are people who are watching conservative news and are preferring Donald Trump over Ron DeSantis. I think um, there are a number of theories about this. Trump's theory, which he is expounding on now on the trail, is that uh, DeSantis just doesn't have a good personality. Like, he's just, he's not cool. He has no cool factor. He's not good with people. Um, DeSantis's wife is an important tool for him on that front, and we're seeing her more and more on the trail, including in Iowa, which is in a really important state for Ron DeSantis. Uh, but there is this thought among many of his backers that he needs to connect better with people and that the mainstream media is a conduit for that and that he's got to go there. It's part of the why, though, for DeSantis, right? He's trying to use part of the playbook to suggest that the media somehow colluded with others to make sure that you know, people were going to suppress his numbers in some ways or that he was not going to get the favorable treatment. This reminds me of what happened just a week ago when we heard more information about the notion of social media, possibly with the Hunter Biden laptop. And, la and earlier in the year, the, the, um, the congressional hearings about whether or not Twitter and social media were invested in trying to squash a story in a way that was favorable in 2020. But who is he also pointing to? He's now pointing to Donald Trump as the person who would be in the executive branch at that time. And so although he's pulling a page out of that playbook to say the media is the enemy, which we are not, we all agree, not the enemy. We we, he talks about it now like, well, hold on. Remember, somebody worked with the enemy at that point, and that is Trump. And so it's a way of sort of flipping on its head in a novel way. I don't know if it's going to work with the many people you're talking about, but that's part of a playbook and you add one more element. But the problem with the playbook is that Donald Trump doesn't actually believe that playbook. Yeah. He's always said he hates the media, the media is biased, he doesn't want anything to do with them, they're lying. But he uses the media nonstop. His entire 2016 campaign was based on using the media, having earned media. I mean, he didn't even pay for ads at that time. He has worked the media his entire... We know he wants attention from the media. I mean, he pays attention to all of these shows. He watches CNN constantly. I mean, that is something that we know. So that playbook, maybe that's something that he says, but actually doing it is not something he does. And DeSantis is actually following through with it, which might not be to his benefit. We have, we, at Axios, we've talked about it as, as his safe space strategy, that DeSantis's media has been entirely um, what he considers to be safe audiences. Does that matter, though? I mean, I guess this is always my question, given the fact that it's a, kind of a diffuse uh, media ecosphere right now. Trump proved that you don't necessarily, he, you can use the media in the way that you want to use the media. Do you speak to just the media in your cocoon? In a Republican primary where you have such a dominant force, yep. Kristen's covering every single day, 
What do you have to do? Is it a matter of sitting down with CNN and NBC and ABC, or is it something else? I think it's a really good question because Ron DeSantis' biggest challenge right now is that the Republican base still likes Donald Trump. Right. I mean, Ron DeSantis is the number two candidate. It's not like he's at 3%. Right. He's by far the number two candidate, but he can't take away from Trump, and that's been his challenge. I think his... He's going to test all these doors and see what works and see if any of it matters. But fundamentally, he's waiting for the base to lose faith in Donald Trump. And if they don't, it will be very hard for him. He's also a very distant second, though. I mean, he's not I mean, he's he's number two in the way that like your kids in a time record, the 12th place ribbon. Like it's a very big stretch between the two. They give ribbons for 12th place? They do. (laughs) I have several of them. And I know you were a star athlete in college. That's all very personal. I'm just asking. I mean, I know. Champion, I get it. Okay, well, the twelfth place ribbon, five foot three kid. Um, no, I was always number one. I know. Um, but the but the point of it is, it's a, it's a distant second, and yet the idea of attacking the media is always seems to be a very winning thing in, in a world where echo chambers are successful. We talk about it all the time the idea that we we preach to the choir now and hope that only they will turn up to vote. But of course, the primary versus the general, very different ball games. And so we're looking to figure out whether this notion of the weaponization of the federal government weaponization of the media, whether all of those things are going to play into the favor of one particular candidate. Right now, it's not clear whether any of the weaponization comments are actually going to give him an advantage. But so far, he's trying them. Yeah, and, and we'll see how his strategy changes, right? I mean, so far, he hasn't attacked the president on the, mm-hmm. on the charges, right? Um, he has actually defended the former president. Will that change? How is he going to use mainstream media amid all these attacks from Trump directly attacking him? So we shall see. There's a debate coming up. There is. Maybe an opportunity. Maybe we'll have everybody on stage. All right, Laura Coates, Kristen Holmes, Margaret Tolov. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. And Russia's top general allegedly seen publicly for the first time since the failed Wagner insurrection. What he's doing and saying right now. Coming up next. And we have some brand news, brand new news just in. We're hearing from the Kremlin that Yevgeny Prigozhin actually met with President Vladimir Putin after his short-lived mutiny at the end of June. We're told the meeting took place on June 29th, five days after that rebellion. And this news comes as new video purportedly shows top Russian Army General Valery Grasimov speaking on Sunday. Now, this video is the first time he's been publicly seen since last month's failed Wagner insurrection. CNN's Ben Wiedemann live in eastern Ukraine with more. And Ben, I want to start with the news of that meeting between Putin and Prigozhin. Everybody's been trying to figure out where Prigozhin actually is at this point. How significant is it that he actually met with President Putin after that insurrection? Phil, the soap opera in Moscow is really getting confusing. Uh, what has happened is that Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesman, ha- told reporters within the last hour that on the 29th of June, Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, met with 35 Russian commanders, among them uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the boss of Wagner. And apparently they discussed not only the so-called special military operation in Ukraine, what we call the full-scale invasion. They also, according to Peskov, assessed the events of the 24th of June. Now, let's not forget that on the 24th of June, when that mutiny was uh, taking place, President Putin called the mutiny treason. And here he is five days after that, 
actually meeting with the man behind that treason. Now, of course, since the 29th of June, there have been a lot of questions now that we know they met on the 29th of June, where Prigozhin actually is. People thought he was in Belarus. Then uh, the president of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, said no. He's in St. Petersburg. Maybe he's going to Moscow. So this situation in Russia, which was already mind-boggling on the 24th of June, is only getting more mysterious. Phil? Yeah, it was very much an eyebrow-raising, wait, what kind of news. And, and I think tied to that is the appearance, or at least purported appearance via video, of Valery Grasimov, one of the two military leaders, Sergei Shoigu being the other, that Prigozhin really targeted by name repeatedly and over the course of that insurrection. What does the video, in uh, the release of that video, actually tell us uh, about his place in things at this moment? Well, Valery Garasimov is the chief of the general staff at the defense ministry, and he's first deputy defense minister. And as you said, he was the brunt of uh, Prigozhin's anger for months and months. He accused them of not providing enough ammunition. And now he has appeared for the first time since that mutiny. He was being briefed on uh, what appears to have been a, a Ukrainian attempt to fire cruise missiles at that strategic bridge linking Russia and Crimea. There were rumors yesterday that he had been dismissed or demoted. Uh, but here we see Garasimov uh, back in public again. We cannot verify when this video was shot, but it does appear that he's being reintroduced to the Russian public uh, in his normal capacity. So, as I said, Events in Moscow keep everybody guessing. Phil? Yeah, soap opera, great way to put it. Ben Wiedemann doing great reporting on the ground in eastern Ukraine, also trying to keep track of what's going on in Moscow. Thanks so much, Ben. <laughs> yeah, quite the turn of events there. Well, booze at the All England Club after Belarusian Victoria Azarenka lost in a three-set match Sunday to Alina Svitolina and didn't shake hands with the Ukrainian. But there may have been some confusion in the crowd as to why before the tournament. Svitolina said publicly that she would refuse to shake the hands of any Russian or Belarusian players because of the ongoing war in Ukraine. Azarenka instead gestured to her opponent, something she said was out of respect. And in a post-game interview, Svitolina wiped away tears as she spoke about the war at home. Back home, there's lots of people are watching and cheering for me, so... I was just thinking, you know, there is tough times um, in Ukraine and, and, you know, I'm here playing in front of you guys and, uh, you know, I cannot complain. I just have to fight and try to, to win every single point and in the end, you know, I've, here I am, you know, won the match. So, really, thank you so much. And on a brighter note, a happy ending after Svitolina vented on social media that her Wimbledon win streak forced her to sell her tickets to see Harry Styles in Vienna over the weekend. Well, Styles returned her serve with an invite to any of the four remaining shows on the tour and wished her well in the tournament. Congress back in session today with a long to-do list with little time. We're going to break down the looming deadlines on the agenda. Plus... I don't think there is unanimity in NATO about whether or not to bring Ukraine into the NATO family now. 
at this moment in the middle of a war. That was President Biden saying it's premature to allow Ukraine to join NATO as Russia's war continues. How this will affect the alliance? Coming up next. President Biden moments ago wrapping up his meeting with British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak ahead of tomorrow's big summit with NATO leaders in Lithuania. It was the sixth meeting uh, between the two world leaders. Biden just left 10 Downing Street. He is now headed to Windsor Castle to meet face to face with King Charles for the first time since his coronation. Critical meetings with NATO leaders just a few hundred miles from the fighting in Ukraine. Russia's war posing the biggest threat to global stability for the alliance in recent history. And perhaps the most difficult questions at the summit will be about a pathway for Ukraine to joining NATO. Listen to what President Biden told Fareed Zakaria. I don't think there is unanimity in NATO about whether or not to bring Ukraine into the NATO family now, at this moment, in the middle of a war. For example, if you did that, then, you know, we, I, and I mean what I say, we're, we're determined to commit every inch of territory that is NATO territory. It's a commitment that we've all made no matter what. If the war is going on, then we're all in the war. You know, we're in war with Russia, if that were the case. So I think we have to lay out a path for the rational path for Russia, for excuse me, for Ukraine to be able to qualify to get into NATO. But I think it's premature to say to call for a vote, you know, in now, because I there's other qualifications that need to be met, including democratization and some of those issues. Joining us now, CNN military analyst and retired Air Force Colonel Cedric Layton. Uh, so as we look ahead to this week, tell us more about these key issues on the table. Yeah, Pamela, good morning. The big issue, of course, is the one that's kind of taking the air out of the room. It's Ukraine's path to membership. Uh, this is going to be the key thing that they're going to be discussing. Are they going to actually make this work? Uh, then you have Sweden's accession to NATO. That's another country that is trying to enter uh, NA the NATO alliance for the first time in its history. And then, of course, the type of assistance that we will actually be providing to Ukraine, whether the West provides certain weapons, such as ATACMs, F-16s, uh, that's pretty much a done deal, but the ATACMs isn't. So there are a lot of things that they're going to do. And of course, over this, you've got the whole issue about the cluster munitions. Colonel Aiden, uh, the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky told our Aaron Burnett in an exclusive interview that giving Ukraine an invitation to NATO would be an important motivation for Ukrainian soldiers, for the Ukrainian people. Do you think that that's true, the idea that putting that out there as a distinct possibility with a clear pathway would have a tangible effect uh, on the fight right now. I do, Phil. And, and the reason I think that is uh, because one of the key things that you uh, that you actually have here is, uh, you know, what do you do with the rest of the world and how are these particular uh, issues going to be part of the way in which uh, each one of these areas actually, uh, you know, is, is used in, in this. So when it comes to the mor moral a moral compass that uh, that you actually need to make this work, uh, you need to be able to have a path forward for this. I do believe that it's very important uh, from a morale standpoint that Ukraine be allowed to enter uh, the NATO alliance and that the pathway be very clear in this case. And Colonel, I do want to ask you, because right now behind you on the screen, you have uh, the uh, country's banning cluster munitions that had been 
uh, a decision that has met with some controversy that the United States decided to provide Ukraine with cluster munitions. Obviously, there's more than 100 countries that are signatories uh, to a declaration against those using those munitions. Kind of lay out the why here, why the United States decided to move forward with this. Yes. So, Phil, the, the big issue here is the countries that are banning cluster munitions are all the ones in red right here. It goes all the way from Australia to Canada uh, to countries in South America and in sub-Saharan Africa, as well as uh, Europe. Now, the countries that don't ban uh, cluster munitions include the U.S., North Korea, Russia, Ukraine, China, Turkey, uh, and Iran. Uh, so these countries are, you know, part of a group that still is using these weapons. And the reason they're using these weapons is because they don't see an alternative. Now, when it comes to what's happening in Ukraine, we don't see an alternative because the defense industrial base has actually not kept pace with the munitions needs that Ukraine has. Uh, they, if they don't use cluster munitions right now, they will run out of munitions. And that's the argument that President Biden is making and why he believes that the United States has to offer cluster munitions to the Ukrainians at this point in time. All right, Colonel Cedric Layton, thank you for laying it all out for us on this Monday morning. We appreciate it. You bet. And for more on what we're watching at the NATO summit, which starts tomorrow, joining us now is former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, William Taylor, the vice president of the Russia and Europe Center at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Also with us, CNN contributor and staff writer for The New Yorker and Biden biographer, Evan Osnos. Um, Evan, I want to start with you. Uh, President Biden, you know, if there's one area where I think uh, foreign policy is certainly something that he has some expertise in over his five plus decades uh, working in Washington, the U.S. Senate vice president, now president. Uh, but I think when you talk to his national security team, what they've been able to do in terms of NATO, in terms of strengthening the alliance over the course of the last year plus has been, I think, one of the cornerstones of this administration. What do you think this upcoming summit means for his presidency? And I think to some degree for kind of the Western alliance at this point. Well, as you say, this has been a big piece of his personal agenda and also his public image as a leader of the United States, that he's been involved not just in foreign affairs, but also in Ukraine. I remember going with him in 2014 when he was in the vice presidency to Ukraine. He was already working on issues at that point. Right now, he's got three goals, really, over the course of the next three days. One is, number one, to make sure that Ukraine still has the support from member countries that it's been getting over the course of the last 15 months. Number two, make sure that NATO is strong and that it reaffirm its commitment to doing something about staying involved in this war. But number three, it's also about avoiding a direct war with Russia. And you can't understand any one of those three. Uh, you can't understand his thinking about Ukraine's membership in Ukraine without keeping all three of them in mind. It is, as he said in his interview with Fareed Zakaria the other day, he means what he says when he says that he's concerned about a direct war with Russia and that moving too fast in his mind on Ukraine could uh, put the United States and other member states into a position they don't want to be in. Yeah. And, you know, the NATO alliance has remained remarkably strong since this war began. Right. But of course, um, there have been a lot of challenges, lots of tests. The recent decision by President Biden to send cluster munitions uh, to Ukraine, as so, so many of U.S. allies have signed been signatories uh, banning cluster munitions, including the U.K., where the president is, Right now, and there's this looming issue, of course, of Ukraine joining the uh, NATO. The president said he doesn't want to go into direct war with Russia, that any membership with Ukraine would happen after the war. But there's also the argument being made that, that Putin is weakened right now um, and that this might be the time. What do you say? Putin is weakened, there's no doubt. Um, the alliance is strong. Um, and the president's, of course, right that now 
immediately this week is not the time for Ukraine to join NATO because they are in a war. The Ukrainians say that. President Zelensky says that. Now is not the time. The question is, what's the pathway? How do you get there? Because they, everybody, the NATO alliance in particular, it's almost unanimous here that the, that the NATO alliance will accept Ukraine in, will invite Ukraine in. Um, and so moving in that direction, what are the path, what are the steps on that path to get there? That's what they're looking for right now. When you listen to the president speak, it's clear you can hear kind of the outline of the path forward, particularly long term on defense assistance, democratization issues, which I think still very much so need to be addressed to some degree within the country. Do you think they come out of this summit with a clear kind of roadmap? I think you'll see that. I think what we'll see this week is the way that they put words together and the words will add up to a pathway and it will be a good signal to the Ukrainians that they will come out encouraged by whatever words they come up with that will lead to uh, eventual membership. That they'll come up with because again, the NATO allies, most of the allies are there. They're even farther leaning far more forward than we are. Um, so I think President Biden will hear that when he's there and they'll come up with a good, a good message. All right, we'll be watching all of it very closely. Ambassador William Taylor, Evan Osnos, thank you. Well, Congress returning from the holiday recess today as lawmakers scramble to meet crucial deadlines before August recess. What's at stake? And a 14-year-old girl went missing. Now a U.S. Marine is in custody. Where on the base did police find the teen? And what more we're learning? Stay close. We'll be back with more. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. You're looking live at the U.S. Capitol building this morning. Lawmakers staring down several major deadlines as they return from the July 4th recess. They're facing a potential government shutdown this fall if they can't agree on annual spending bills. Also back from his July 4th recess, CNN Congressional <laughs> Correspondent, <laughs> Chief Congressional Correspondent, Manu Raju is here. Hey, Manu, I feel like we do this after July 4th every single yep. year. There's no path forward. They have to find a path forward. Usually they find a path forward eventually. Yeah. Will they this time? Uh, that's a big question here. Remember, they have to fund the government by the end of September. And the real challenge is the deal that was reached that Kevin McCarthy cut with the White House to raise the national debt limit. Under that deal, they agreed to spending levels that the House and the Senate would agree upon. Here's a problem, though. A group of hard-right Republicans essentially rejected that agreement, and they have the power, given the narrowness of the House Republican majority, a handful of members can certainly hold up the process. And as a result, despite a deal that was being reached on overall spending levels, Kevin McCarthy was forced to acquiesce to the demands of the hard-right members and cut federal spending even more. This is the real challenge because Senate Republicans are opposed to the levels that Kevin McCarthy has agreed to with the hard right of his conference. So now he's got to reach an agreement, not just among his own members, get it through the House, but also get Senate Republicans on board. And they are tens of billions of dollars apart on how to cut spending and how to deal with spending levels on a wide range of programs, which is going to make things incredibly difficult. And if Kevin McCarthy were to compromise and go beyond the levels that the hard right wants, they have that weapon that he agreed to back in the speaker's race back in January, where any single member could call for a vote seeking his ouster as a speaker, which raises the challenges for him internally, as well as trying to simply do the basic job of governing and funding the government. So a lot of challenges and hurdles ahead is Congress returns from recess today. I see why you took this last week off, gearing <laughs> yeah, up for, right. uh, for the battle ahead. Yes. All right, so I gotta say this surprises me, that senators are set to receive their first ever 
briefing, classified briefing on artificial intelligence. I mean, it wasn't that long ago when you had leaders in the space saying that artificial intelligence could pose an existential threat to humanity. And now they're getting their first briefing yeah, just look, now. And what's the House doing on the House, this? Not a whole lot. And there's just Congress is typically slow to deal with a lot of these issues. But this is a huge priority for Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. He has put together an outline of ex- how he wants to regulate, suggesting how to deal with the growing concerns over artificial intelligence. That is just generally broad strokes. He needs to fill in the details here. And he has begun to have a number of of public, non-classified briefings with senators to talk about these issues. You're right. Tomorrow will be the first time there'll be ever a first-time classified briefing. And what is driving these concerns from Chuck Schumer is how China is dealing with artificial intelligence and the concerns of the Chinese Communist Party is essentially ahead of where the United States is on this issue. So there is a hope among the Senate Republican Democratic leader that they can get an agreement or at least get some political will to regulate this very complex complex issue. But as you know, as we head into an election year, it's going to be incredibly difficult to get both sides in, on the same page on this, get it through the House, get it through the Senate, get it signed by the president. But the Democratic yeah. leaders and the Republican leaders recognize this as an issue. Yeah. But how they deal with it is the big question. Time is of the essence, though, because you're right. China's trying to become the leader. Russia's trying to become the leader of AI. And um, there's a big race right now for that. Big race. He's rested. He's ready. He's Senators ready. beware around the corner. Yeah, Manu Raju is lurking. Thanks, buddy, for coming Thanks. in. Yeah, got it. All right, well, torrential downpour stranded drivers and a state of emergency. Details on the historic flash flooding in New York. Plus, right now, President Biden is heading to Windsor Castle for his first meeting with King Charles III since his coronation. We're going to have live coverage of the president's trip as it continues. So stay with us. We'll be back. We have a emergency situation here in Southern Orange County. Parts of New York recovering from a once in a thousand year flood event. Oh my God, it's up to my knees. Officials say at least one person has died in flood waters after powerful storms. You can see water gushing past houses and rising around cars. The president starts his trip in the UK, meeting with Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. The two leaders have actually met six times, believe it or not, over the past six months. While in London, he will meet with King Charles at Windsor Castle. Two men are expected to discuss climate issues, which is a key priority for King Charles. That NATO summit will be the centerpiece of President Biden's trip here to Europe. High on the agenda, Ukraine's push to join the alliance as well as Sweden's bid for a session. Zelensky told Aaron Burnett that that decision is entirely up to President Biden. I don't think there is unanimity in NATO to bring Ukraine into the NATO family now, in the middle of a war. A warning today about a sports drink that is all the rage with the young people. We have created our own drink company. Prime is engaged in a vast advertising campaign aimed at kids, even though kids aren't supposed to drink a drink with this much caffeine. Drama in the Gold Cup quarterfinals. The U.S. answering a late goal from Canada in the final minutes, sending it to penalties. If he misses, if Turner saves, the United States moves on to the Gold Cup semifinal. And it's off the bar! The U.S. wins it! 
Good morning, everyone. I'm Phil Mattingly here with Pamela Brown in Washington, D.C. Poppy is off, and I know you were staying up late to watch the Gold Cup of course. quarterfinals. Uh, of course. I'm going off of like an hour of sleep right now, so it's all good. But. Great match. The U.S. women also win, uh, winning week before the U.S. World Cup. Most importantly, though, Pamela, as we hang out this morning, there's a ton of news there on really a Monday is. morning, which I Some, greatly appreciate. I do, too. That's not always the case, better right? Th- better than coffee, and that's exactly why we're going to begin in London, where President Biden has kicked off his high-stakes trip to Europe after spending the past couple of hours meeting with British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. The president is about to head about 20 miles west to meet with King Charles for the first time since his coronation. And these back-to-back high-profile meetings, they come ahead of tomorrow's NATO summit in Lithuania. CNN's Arlette Signs is live at 10 Downing Street, and CNN's Max Foster is standing by at Windsor Castle. Arlette, let's kick it off with you this morning. What are you hearing about Biden's meeting with Sunak? Well, Pamela, President Biden spent about 40 minutes here at 10 Downing this morning to meet with P- British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. The president described uh, their conversation and their relationship, saying that they have an incredibly strong bond. And really, that bond and connection has been built around the U.S. and the U.K.'s uh, continued unity and support for Ukraine during its uh, it, war uh, against, U- uh, against Russia. Uh, it, this comes as the president is set to head to the NATO summit. So this uh, meeting between Biden and Sunak gave him an opportunity to kind of consult ahead of that meeting of the NATO alliance. And it also came just a few days after President Biden approved uh, sending controversial cluster munitions to Ukraine, a move that puts him at odds with many allies within NATO, including the United Kingdom. Sunak uh, has noted that the UK is one of over 100 countries that has signed on to a convention that prohibits uh, the production and the use of cluster munitions and also discourages uh, the use of them by other countries as well. And the White House has really tried to downplay uh, this uh, difference that there has, is between the U.S. and allies, saying that there is not going to be a fracture in the alliance when it comes to supporting Ukraine. So the president uh, here started his day talking about Ukraine. They also touched on other issues uh, like climate, technology, artificial intelligence, and also China. Uh, and now he is heading on his way to Windsor Castle for that first engagement with King Charles III since his coronation. All right, Max, I have to ask, there's always a lot of intrigue when it comes to President President Biden and the UK, Uh, President Biden and uh, royalty to some degree. What are the expectations heading into Biden's first meeting with now King Charles? Yeah, well, the red carpet firmly being rolled out, as it always is, for uh, the US president. This is the single most important bilateral relationship for the United Kingdom. So arrive here at the castle, there'll be a guard of honour. They will play the US national anthem. Then they'll go into the castle for tea. It's something that US presidents always enjoy. Uh, The first serving president that... um, King Charles met with was Eisenhower back in 1959. So there's a long history there. Obviously plays into Queen Elizabeth's history as well with the many US presidents that she met. Uh, what is different about this uh, visit is that we're actually being told what they're going to discuss, which would never have been the case with Elizabeth. Those conversations were always highly confidential. We're told they will be discussing environment, something that... Uh, King Charles and the President of the US share a lot of common interests over, so they can have a discussion about that. A lot to fix, actually, frankly, in
in this special relationship, as it's called here in the UK. There are tensions. Arlette was talking there about Ukraine, not just about these cluster bombs, but also about how quickly Ukraine should become a member of NATO. And also, reportedly, President Biden rejected the UK's choice as head of NATO as well. So when it comes to the head of state meeting with the president, this is all about firming up the very long-term relationship between the two countries. So some pressure, actually, on King Charles to get this one right as a big meeting for him at the beginning of his monarchy. Yeah, the first meeting uh, with President Biden as the king. Thanks so much, Max Foster. Our lot signs. We appreciate it. And new this morning, we're now hearing from the Kremlin that Yevgeny Prigozhin met with President Vladimir Putin after, after that short-lived mutiny at the end of June. We're told the meeting took place on June 29th, five days after that rebellion. CNN's Claire Sebastian joins us live from London. Uh, Claire, this is still kind of the, the stunning news of this morning. What exactly do we know right now? Yeah, Phil, another major twist in this tale. As you say, the Kremlin saying the meeting happened on June 29th, just five days after that armed rebellion and 11 days ago. So that raises, of course, questions. Why did they wait so long to tell us? There was, though, a leak uh, in a French news outlet. We know uh, that it lasted three hours, according to uh, Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesman, though he doesn't say what exactly was discussed and that it involved 35 people. They're saying all unit commanders and the leadership of the campaign, including Prigozhin. This seems to be deliberately ambiguous. They're not saying whether these are the commanders of the overall uh, so-called special military operations or Ministry of Defense figures. The Kremlin would not comment on whether any representative of the Ministry of Defense was there. Uh, but they do say that Putin listened to the explanations provided by the commanders and offered them further options uh, for deployment and a further combat use. Again, major questions uh, around that. Does this signal uh, that Wagner could still have a role to play uh, in this conflict? That, of course, is crucial to, to, to Ukraine. We still don't know, by the way, where Yevgeny Prigozhin is. If this meeting was uh, on the 29th, we don't know where he's gone since then. There have been no photos or videos of him emerging since the armed rebellion itself, where he was seen leaving Rostov in Russia. So many, many, many questions about this. Uh, one really interesting comment, though, I want to bring out from Peskov. He said that uh, these commanders uh, said that they were staunch supporters and soldiers of the head of state and supreme commander, so Putin himself. He said they were also ready to continue to fight for the motherland. So are they reaffirming uh, their support for Putin? Does Wagner, as I said, continue to have a role to play in this war? Many, many questions. Many questions left reading the tea leaves. Claire Sebastian, thanks so much. Yeah, you want to be a fly on the wall in that meeting, right? Exactly. Three hours. Wow. All right. So let's bring in former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, William Taylor. He is a vice president of the Russia and Europe Center at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Senior military analyst, former member of Joint Staff at the Pentagon and former deputy director for training at the NSA, retired Colonel Cedric Layton and CNN senior political analyst Nia Malika Henderson. All-star panel for you on this morning to talk about all the news happening. So much going on. Let's start with this meeting, right? I mean, I, I, I want to get your reaction to this, Ambassador, this meeting between Prigozhin and Putin just days after this attempted coup. <clears throat> Pamela, it's, it's hard to understand. I mean, here's President Putin, who came out guns a-blazing on the 24th of June, saying that Prigozhin was a traitor and had stabbed the, the Russian nation in the back and he was going to crush him. And then he meets with him again. I think this demonstrates Putin's weakness. I think it really shows how weak he is. Okay, so where's he been for the next 11 Who days? knows? That's the <laughs> question, Bill. We don't know where this guy was. But clearly he was not under under control. Clearly he was not in Belarus. Uh, he was not going by the deal that he apparently struck with Putin through Lukashenko. So we don't know. 
So what is the significance of this, and, and like in the larger picture with the war going on in Ukraine? Yeah, Pamela, the, you know, the big thing that, that I look at this is, you know, as Ambassador Taylor said, you know, this guy is weak. I mean, if you were going to be playing the czar, he could, uh, as you know, in Russian history, you always had the czar as the center of uh, all things good, even though there was evil happening in the middle of, of uh, the bureaucracy, uh, the czar would take care of you eventually. So Putin could have played that role. But it appears that he didn't play that role. And it, since he didn't do that, uh, you know, I agree with the ambassador. This, uh, this makes him very weak. And from a military standpoint, this could mean that the Wagner Group comes back into Ukraine. Could mean. Uh, it could also mean uh, that they're trying to reorganize things because they have a shortage of munitions or they have a shortage of weapon systems or a shortage of personnel. And I believe they have a shortage in all those three areas. Um, so everything's clear as mud, uh, <laughs> obviously, in Moscow, which is... Uh, par for the course to some degree, but this is all happening as President Biden and NATO leaders head into a very consequential summit uh, in Lithuania. From, the, from President Biden's perspective, what's kind of the key takeaway? What does he need from this meeting, from this summit? You know, I think stability, right? Uh, and this ongoing support of the Ukrainian uh, war effort. You have in America polls showing that Americans, by and large, uh, support this. It's over 50%. It's more than Biden's approval rating. And so he needs to keep this alliance together. He needs to keep NATO strong, right? If you flash back to President Trump's um, presidency, uh, a very different take on NATO and America's position in the world. So I think if you're Biden, you want to strengthen the NATO. You want to uh, also, I mean, just sort of politically for his own uh, benefit, I think, you want to make no mistakes, right? No gas over there that are visible and sort of easily uh, picked up on by the American public. But mainly, I think it's, it's making sure uh, that this alliance stays together, that they stay strong in support of this effort uh, of, of Ukraine. Listen, there has been some disagreement around these uh, munitions, for instance, the cluster munitions, some disagreement here from his people of his own party, uh, and then, of course, some disagreement with the NATO alliance as well. And on that note, I'm wondering, Ambassador, because as, as a former diplomat behind the scenes, you know, you heard Jake Sullivan, the, the president's national security advisor, say, look, uh, there, we haven't had any, you know, issues with our allies over the cluster munitions, even though a majority of the NATO countries have banned cluster munitions in the production of it. He said, there's been no issue. You had that statement from Sunak, the prime minister of the UK, um, expressing the UK stance. But behind the scenes, do you think it's a different situation in terms of what the allies are saying to the Biden administration about this no, decision? I think what the allies are saying is <clears throat> we need Ukraine to win. The allies are saying we are united behind Ukraine. We want them to, we want them to put, push the Russians out. In order to do that, the Ukrainians need ammunition, 155 artillery ammunition. It turns out they don't have very much. It turns out we don't have very much of the unitary. What we have a lot of are these cluster munitions. So in order to get them the ammunition they need for right now, until we can ramp up production of this unitary, they need to provide, they need to provide ammunition so that the Russians can't run them over. Can I just follow up really quickly, if you don't yeah. mind? Um, in terms of the, dif the difference between the cluster munitions the U.S. is sending over versus what Russia has been using, break it down for us, Cedric. I guess it's called the dud rate, right? That's right. These uh yeah, the dud rate is, is basically the failure rate, if you will, of these munitions. So for the American munitions that are being planned uh, to be shipped to Ukraine, the dud rate is about 2.35%. Uh, for, that's the official, those are the official figures. In real life, it'll probably be a little bit higher than that, but it is definitely not going to be as high as the Russian rate, which is around 30 to 40%, which is incredibly bad. Ambassador, can I ask you a, a critical kind of sub-story of this NATO summit is 
Sweden. And Turkey's continued blocking of their accession into NATO. Uh, Finland is already in. Sweden is kind of hanging out there right now. I think if you read between the lines of what President Biden has said, to some degree, some of the statements uh, out of the Turkish foreign ministry, um, there is a potential deal in the works or hanging out there. Uh, Turkey obviously wants access to F-16s. They have a lot of very powerful uh, Capitol Hill objectors to that idea, including the top two uh, senators on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Perhaps you build up some of uh, Greece's defense capabilities as well. You do it as kind of a package deal to get an agreement for Turkey to sign off. I'm not trying to make this into 6D chess here, but how does this, is there an end game here that you see? There is an end game, Phil. This, this, we will see Sweden in NATO. Maybe we'll see it this week. Really? We will, maybe we'll see it this week. Maybe there's a deal, you know, as you said, President Biden talked to President Erdogan. They've had a conversation about F-16s, about Sweden. There's a deal there, and I expect that that will happen this week, but if it doesn't happen this week, it'll happen shortly thereafter. Even with... I mean, Congress does have a say over weapons capabilities being sent even to allies. And that gives President Biden leverage when he talks to Erdogan. He said, you need to lead, let Sweden in or else there's no chance of getting the F-16. Yeah, that's, that's important. And then you have the, the looming question about Ukraine and uh, its uh, desire to join NATO, right? You heard the president say, not right now. The president doesn't want to get into a war uh, with Russia. You look at Article 5, mm -hmm. if Ukraine joined, it would certainly complicate things. How important, though, is it for the president to work with the allies to lay out a path for Ukraine to join NATO? Listen, I think it's incredibly uh, important, but I think people understand, right? Because if you let Ukraine in now, this is this is a war uh, with Russia, and that is what uh, Biden, that's what the allies want to prevent at all costs. So it is important to sort of lay out what are the guidelines, right? Is there there has to be some sort of settlement, I think, of this war, some sort of peace deal, uh, as, as well as some sort of democratization as well. Uh, President Biden talked about that uh, with Ukraine. So there's got to be some sort of path, but it sounds like at this point the allies are all in agreement, right, that letting Ukraine in at this point would be a disaster because it would mean, you know, a, a strike against Ukraine would be a, a, would, would invite a, basically World War III. Yeah. And they say, you know, the president's saying after the war, well, what does that mean? What is the end game, um, you know, as this war continues to drag on? Thank you all so much. Great to hear your perspective, your, your expertise on these issues this morning. Well, it's being called a once-in-a-millennium rainfall ahead. The areas in the Northeast that are still at risk this morning. And manhunts are underway on both coasts this morning after inmates, right here you see them, described as dangerous by authorities. They escaped from jail and they're on the run. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Right now, at this moment, there are more than 25 million Americans across the Northeast that are bracing for flooding as a powerful storm pushes north after drenching New York with huge amounts of rain and deadly flash floods. Just north of New York City, parts of the Hudson Valley saw a once in millennium levels of rain. This was the scene in Highland Falls, New York. Look at that, it's incredible. And a woman was reportedly swept away by raging floodwaters and drowned while trying to evacuate from her home with her dog. A rescue teams using a boat right there to save this man who was stranded in his house. You can see piles of trees and debris pushed up against the homes. The storm dropped nearly eight inches of rain at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. The flooding was so bad that people had to swim out of their cars after becoming stuck. And now the storm system is bearing down on New England. As of right now, more than 1,000 flights are already canceled or delayed today. 
We have team coverage. Pete Montine is tracking the travel chaos the storm has been causing. Let's start, though, with Polo Sandoval. He is live on the ground in Rockland County, New York. What is the situation there right now, Polo? Well, Pam and Phil, good morning to you. With that rain shifting to the north, as you just mentioned, that means a break in the clouds here and an opportunity for recovery, but the impact certainly still being felt. For example, you look behind me, that roadblock here on the Palisades Interstate Parkway, that is detouring drivers here most of the day. If you've driven on it, you know it's extremely busy, especially on a Monday here just north of New York City. But as you mentioned, one of the most affected areas just north of here where those floodwaters proved deadly last night. People's doors. Oh my God. Historic flooding slamming southeastern New York on Sunday. It's up to my knees. I know. Orange County officials say at least one woman died after she was swept away in floodwaters in the town of Highlands. We have an emergency situation here in southern Orange County, in particular the Highland Falls area. A state of emergency was declared in Ontario and Orange County Sunday by New York Governor Kathy Hochul. In Orange County, Hochul and the Orange County executive said it was due to, quote, life-threatening flooding and power outages to more than 12,000 homes. Throughout the county, we have flooding situations and emergency calls. If you do not need to be on the road, stay off the road. At West Point, intense rain recorded there totaled more than seven and a half inches in six hours, according to preliminary data from NOAA. A CNN analysis of NOAA's historical rainfall frequency data indicates this would be a one-in-a-1,000-year rainfall event. Also in Orange County, the city of Cornwall issued a no-travel advisory due to numerous flooded roadways, stranded vehicles, water rescues, mudslides, downed trees, and debris. In Rockland County, flooding stranded vehicles. Police say they've been assisting local fire departments and EMS, helping to get stranded motorists to safety. New York State Police urging people to avoid the Palisades Interstate Parkway due to heavy flooding and washouts. And it's not just New York State feeling the brunt of it. On Sunday, Vermont Governor Phil Scott declared a state of emergency. Friday, heavy rain washed out a portion of Route 4 in Killington. And this morning, an Orange County official confirming for me that they are now going to be putting in place a non-emergency vehicle and pedestrian ban there in Orange County through this evening. That's just north of here, Pam. But the threat far from over with still some 25 million Americans under some form of flood threat with the potential for excessive rains just north of New York State tonight. Mm. It reminds me of the scenes of my home state of Kentucky a year ago and that rebuilding still going on. Uh, our thoughts and prayers are with the folks there. Right. Paula Sandoval, thank you so much. Well, more than 10,000 flights were delayed or canceled yesterday as that wall of storms pummeled the East Coast. CNN aviation correspondent Pete Montine is live for us at Reagan National Airport, just outside the nation's capital. Pete, a uh, nation's travelers turn their lonely and weary eyes to you. Give them good news, Pete. You know, the weather has cleared out today, Phil, and that is the good news, although airlines are still recovering after that huge day for cancellations yesterday. Just check flight aware, 437 cancellations already today after the more than 2,000 nationwide yesterday. That puts it in the top five for cancellations this year. A busy day for a lot of folks. In fact, the TSA told me they screened 2.63 million people at airports nationwide yesterday. All the folks coming back from the holiday week. The worst airports, New York, especially hard hit, LaGuardia, half of all flights in or out 
canceled yesterday. Newark, 8% of all United flights canceled. JFK, huge international hub, about one in five flights there canceled. Boston Logan hit hard. Philadelphia hit hard. Even here at Reagan National Airport, 20% of all flights canceled. Here's what happened. The FAA says as that weather moved through the East Coast, it cut off some major flight routes, essentially the on and off ramps to get in and out of some of those busy airports. So we are still hearing about ground stops today. We are not out of the woods just yet. The FAA warning of ground stops in New York, also in Boston and in Florida as the day goes on. This is the big tip and the big takeaway you should take from this, according to travel experts, try to take the first flight out if you can. It's the weather that builds later in the day that's usually the problem. And if you leave early, you have a 25% ch better chance of getting to where you want to go on time. Phil? Pete, you should have like a travel website. This is like, yeah. it's good tips. I, I, don't minimize yourself as just our brilliant <laughs> aviation correspondent. Thanks. <laughs> diversify yourself. Diversify. Pete, Pete Montine sharing his brilliance and his It'd travel tips with the world. Up. There you go. There's your side. Here we have a business strategist. <laughs> Pete Montine for us at Reagan Airport. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> All right. So let's turn to Iowa Republicans there. They have voted to move up their first in the nation caucuses. How this could impact the crowded 2024 race. And a short time from now, President Biden expected to meet with King Charles. We're going to be live in Windsor. Stay with us. Happening now, President Biden is arriving at Windsor Castle to meet with King Charles. This is their first meeting since King Charles took over the throne. So let's bring in CNN political director David Chalian, CNN senior political analyst Nia Malika Henderson, and national political reporter Axios for Axios Alex Thompson. And Max Foster joins us from Windsor Castle. It's a lot of people joining us, and for good reason, right? Because we got a lot going on. So Max, as we look at these live pictures, what should we expect? Well, he'll travel a short distance from the helicopter um, into the quadrangle there at Windsor Castle, where there will be a guard of honour. They'll play the national anthem. They'll inspect the guard as well. You remember a few years ago, they didn't go so well when President Trump was here. He got a bit lost going along the line. But this is King Charles's first moment like this, really, where he can guide the president along that um, guard of honour. So that'll be interesting to see. Uh, the red carpet rolled out for the US president, as it always is. An absolutely crucial relationship to the United Kingdom, the most important alliance. So you've got the Welsh guards here. They're actually based just down the road here in Windsor. They were involved in the coronation, uh, which um, the President Biden didn't attend, of course. So some people suggesting there's some tension because of that. I think that actually King Charles was very happy to have Jill Biden there. And, uh, you know, the, he had the invitation. He wasn't able to attend. Uh, but this is a moment where we can really celebrate the bilateral relationship between the two countries and ignore some of the tensions between the US and UK, which undoubtedly have set in in recent weeks, really, over the strategy in Ukraine. You know, Alex, I, I want to ask you, because you, you've covered the president so closely over the course of his time in the White House, we're, we're going to keep our eyes on this. You're looking at Windsor Castle right now, as Max was saying, the Guard of Honor, uh, playing as we await the president coming in. You saw the two uh, Chinook helicopters carrying staff and press landing just outside, so we should be seeing the president shortly. The president on the international stage, I think when you talk to advisors, they made clear this is something that kind of animates him. He certainly likes uh, this part of the presidency. What behind the scenes for moments like this, what kind of drives President Biden? 
I mean, this is not unusual for an incumbent president running for re-election because on the international stage, you don't have congressional Republicans basically telling you no all the time, right? <laughs> so he gets to go, and, and you saw this in the interview with Fareed Zakaria over the weekend too, where he was just so much more comfortable talking about these issues. It also, you know, as he was uh, the head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee too. These are issues that really animate him. I can tell you just behind the scenes when, you know, even aides will say, you can tell that he's just like going through these briefing books, looking for little things, going and, and doing these meticulous details about the ammunitions they're sending to Ukraine, really getting in the weeds in ways that he doesn't always with other issues. And, you know, when you think about these two men meeting this again, the first time that President Biden will be meeting with Charles since his coronation, uh, the two men, they have a lot in common, right? Uh, they have waited a long time <laughs> for the jobs that they have, right? Um, they share a passion for climate change. No, no doubt that will be a centerpiece of the discussion today. They've also faced some of the same challenges when it comes to winning over um, you know, but- that's right. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I, I bet their approval ratings are, yeah. are similar. Uh, Biden's is something like 40 percent. And, and some folks, uh, you know, King Charles has been in public and, and booed off and people sort of questioning uh, the worth of the royalty and the royal family uh, at, at this point. But as you said, I mean, these men have a lot in common waiting for decades and decades uh, to get the big job. They both have it now, so they'll meet the, for the first time. And this real interest in climate change, right? If you think about Queen Elizabeth, wasn't really clear what she was interested in other than those cute little dogs that she had. Um, and we know here for King Charles that this has been a, a real passion of, of his uh, for years and years and years. It's also a passion of, of President Biden uh, as well in, in the Democratic Party, progressives uh, in particular. So I'm sure mm-hmm. that'll take up some uh, some time in their discussion. And listen, this is just cool, sort of, you know, the pomp and I circumstance. Mean, yeah, I'm, I'm just and the, captivated the watching this, yeah, right? Exactly. This, is, this is a beautiful entry, but it will be interesting also for King Charles, I'm, I'm watching as well, because he, of course, has been outspoken on climate change, mm-hmm. but now he's in a new role yeah. as king. Right. And so typically has- there's the motto, you know, light over, over politics and, and you don't you don't go there when it comes to politics. And so we'll have to see how um, how he is. Yeah. So he has to be a little bit more careful. Mm-hmm. Right. In, in terms of how he talks about uh, this, this passion of his, which is so important uh, to the globe, the, the climate change that we're seeing here, obviously, in America with these record uh, temperatures. And so we'll see what comes out of this uh, meeting. David, I do want to ask, we saw Marine One come down and land. We should be seeing the president coming off Marine One uh, shortly. Behind some trees, so we won't be able to see the president actually uh, disembark from the helicopter. Probably some smart advance work there. A president running for re-election, obviously a major geopolitical moment as well, given the fact the Ukraine war is still ongoing, about to head to a very consequential NATO summit. Frame what this means for the president right now. Well, as Alex was saying, I mean, Joe Biden, if you want to follow the trajectory here, I mean, he is president because of his... uh, stature on the world stage throughout his career. It's why Barack Obama put him on the ticket in 2008 as vice president was because Barack Obama was had no experience in that area, really, of, of uh, world affairs and needed, he felt, to bolster the ticket. Joe Biden becomes vice president largely because of his foreign policy credentials and his ability to work around the globe with a whole host of, of global leaders. Uh, and so there's no doubt this is one of his favorite pieces of the job. I wonder, you know, when he used to visit with the queen, he probably liked the age comparison better than now uh, meeting with the younger king. 74. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, But, uh, you know, there's no doubt. And uh, this is sort of the precursor to what you're discussing, Phil, which is the meat of this trip is going to be uh, the NATO component to this, uh, given it seems that 
You know, NATO is at a particularly tricky moment uh, given where the situation is with Ukraine and Russia and the length of time uh, needed for continued investment and where that is. And, and you can start seeing, while it's been an unbelievably unified alliance due to the president's work, you can start seeing the continued work that the president is going to need to do to keep it unified. And I want to go back to Max Foster there on the ground as this all plays out. Tell us what's going on here, Max. Well, it's a guard of honour. Um, they, they, they don't have the same protocols at Windsor in the same way as at Buckingham Palace. So these are these have been really developed in recent decades. But the Queen would obviously not want to travel up to Buckingham Palace in her older years. So she would hold a lot of these uh, receptions, these national events um, at Windsor Castle instead. Um, so we can see the King coming out now. A big test for him, really. You were discussing their environment. Uh, we never found out what was discussed in the meetings with the Queen. She always kept that absolutely confidential. We're seeing a new way this King is handling these moments. Both the White House and the Palace have told us that they're going to be discussing environment, which for many has become a t uh, political issue, which is something that monarchs are not meant to be getting involved with. Here in the UK, the Environment Minister recently resigned because he said Rishi Sunak didn't care about the environment, and that caused a real stink. But we know that King Charles has always had an interest in the environment. He's refusing to let it go. He's told the world that he's going to discuss it in this meeting with President Biden and hopefully get some movement on that issue, on something that they have common ground on. Uh, but the, once the president arrives, there will be this guard of honour and you'll see them inspecting the guards there, uh, which is something that Charles has a lot of experience in. It's one of the advantages he has for being one of the longest-serving um, heirs to the monarchy here in the UK, and they're currently playing the British national anthem, and they'll be followed a bit later on uh, when the president arrives uh, with the American national anthem. Max, can I ask you, you know, we see obviously King Charles standing there, we're awaiting President Biden uh, walking out as well. You mentioned this is at Windsor Castle, this isn't Buckingham, and I think part of the reason, you, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, my understanding from White House officials is Buckingham Palace is Going, undergoing some rehabilitation at this moment, uh, some construction at this moment. But the significance of this between these two men, I think Pamela and Nia were talking about how they have had similar trajectories to some degree. What do you know about their relationship, Prince Charles, or King Charles, sorry, and, uh, and President Biden? Well, largely in my experience, it's been through the climate issue. So I was at the COP summit in Glasgow when they had a meeting in 2021 on the sidelines there, and they got on really well on that issue. And this is the key issue for King Charles. So I think that's where they find common ground. I think, as you say, in my experience of US presidents um, coming to the UK, really enjoying these moments because they stand the test of time, don't they? That image next to a British monarch. And the Queen was the towering figure, the longest serving head of state. And I know that US presidents would like to have that photo with the Queen. And this is a new era, Charles's era. So it's a significant moment because he's obviously going to be in this role for many decades to come. So I think, uh, you know, they can look to the long term relationship between the two nations. Whereas this morning we saw a shorter term discussion of relations between the US and the UK when uh, President Biden met with the Prime Minister. Uh, but these are very important moments because they go down in the history books. These images last forever, and, and King Charles will use it showing how many U.S. presidents he's met in many years to come. And this is the first serving president he's operated with, so it's interesting to see how that'll play out. Yeah, and just help us better understand, Max, the difference between the Queen's meetings with uh, the, the late Queen, we should say, meetings with former U.S. presidents, and what we expect between this meeting with King Charles and President Biden today, the, the difference there. 
Well, the difference is just that we never, you know, the, the Queen's policy was to never ever discuss uh, what happened in those meetings, and we would be told that we would never find out what happens in those meetings because the idea of those meetings was that presidents, just as their own prime ministers here in this country, could have a completely free discussion without, you know, any concern about it leaking and not having to hold back in any way. Um, and this was a, something that US presidents, I know that President Trump would talk to the Queen about historic moments because she's had so much experience. She had so much experience. But Charles has also had a lot of experience. He met President Eisenhower, his first serving US president, back in 1959. He's been often in those meetings with the Queen. So um, I think that he's got a lot of history, just not as a serving monarch. They'll go inside, as the Queen would have done, and have tea. You know, that's the British tradition. And I think presidents always enjoy that. The one difference is they're then going to go into a discussion about a conference that's been held here about climate change. So uh, President Biden will be drawn into that. It'll be interesting to hear uh, if you guys hear from the White House what was discussed in there. I don't know how much we'll hear from the palace, but I think it'd be very telling to see how Charles will handle his monarchy if they really divulge a lot of information about that meeting. He's a bit, a bit more political uh, this monarch than the, uh, his predecessor, and it shows how he's changing the tone of British monarchy, really. Yeah. I, I just have a quick follow um, because President Biden did not attend King Charles's coronation. He sent his wife and his granddaughter. I wonder if uh, King Charles has any sore feelings from that at all. Uh, you know, they would have loved to have had him here, I'm sure. The key ally, the key head of state that would have flown in away from the Commonwealth leaders. Um, I haven't been given any suggestion, but certainly, you know, it's been, there's a lot of talk in London. It would have been nice to have the president here. Uh, but I think that, you know, the, the, the most important thing is that they're seen to get on very well. And that's what today is all about and showing those images. Uh, this is the quadrangle, by the way. This is the part that the public is never allowed in. This is the private part of this huge thousand year old castle. Um, interesting to see how Charles is using these properties now as well. He hasn't moved into Windsor in the same way that the Queen was there. It was her favourite property. She was always there. She had her horses there. He hasn't done the same, but we're being shown here that he will be using it for state events. And we'll wait to see how this private part of the property is used in future, because there's a suggestion that Buckingham Palace will just become a public space and perhaps Windsor Castle should be as well. He's trying to cut back on the costs of monarchy to try to show that he's in tune with the cost of living crisis and, you know, the world going forward, which often has quite an awkward relationship with the monarchy, frankly, and all the privilege that they have. That's a fascinating point. It's illuminating kind of the, the new dynamics of, of, a, new, of a new king. Um, Alex, I want to ask you, and I want to get to Max at this too, but I want to ask you as we bring the panel back in uh, while we wait for President Biden. Every time President Biden heads to the UK, there's a, a kind of a fascination with his Irish roots. You're seeing the president's motorcade looks to be rolling in right now. Um, I, I would love going on foreign trips with him to the UK and reading the uh, British media's uh, response to... Uh, sometimes what they would perceive to be a, a level of coldness yep. <laughs> to, to the UK. Well, tell people about that. There was this one really fascinating exchange several years ago where a, a reporter from the BBC asked him a question and Biden responded, BBC, I'm Irish. And you could... Which we laughed at, but in the UK right. it was like a very right. significant thing. Exactly. And I think you're going to see, I, I'm assuming, a different sort of tone, a different sort of energy than when the president was in Ireland just a few months ago, which honestly is probably the happiest I've ever seen him <laughs> as president. The guy was just having a great time, was doing selfies out in the public, was staying out late, 
um, which he doesn't do all that often, especially out in public. So uh, I think you're absolutely right. This uh, it, it is going to be some really interesting body language to watch. Yeah. He was tracing his family roots. He was really, uh, really soaking it up, engaging there. All right, so I want to bring in Sally Bedell-Smith as we see uh, President Biden approaching there um, in the motorcade. Sally, what is the significance, in your view, of this meeting today between President Biden and, and King Charles? We should note to our viewers, no one covers the royal family better than Sally Bedell-Smith. Well, bring, bring us there. Well, I think it's going to be very congenial. I think they're absolutely of like mind on climate. This is an issue that has been animating Charles for 50 years. He gave his first speech on, uh, on the environment in 1970. He is no stranger to convening British elite, you know, British businessmen, British philanthropists, and he has a good, you can see, he has a good chemistry with Biden. He has met him a number of times over the years. And the last time he was at Windsor Castle was two years ago with um, Biden's mother. And it was a really congenial meeting. He, he said later that the queen reminded him of his own mother. And so um, I think there's a lot of warmth between the two of them, and they and they're ready for the anthem. As we see King Charles, President Biden, listening to the national anthem. Sally, continue, if you would, please. Well, also, um, I think what's going to be really interesting about today is that unlike previous meetings that monarchs have had with presidents, at least in the case of uh, Queen Elizabeth II, um, her meetings with the Bidens two years ago, with the Obamas, uh, with President Trump and Melania, they were all sort of ceremonial occasions. This is very different. This is going to be a meeting of substance. This is going to deal with climate. And he has, in, in the people he has invited, philanthropists and uh, financiers and industrialists, people who have already been on board the climate bandwagon, and the purpose, I mean, it is really interesting that it is a meeting with a purpose, a very specific agenda. So that will be a real departure from what we have seen. You had mentioned, Sally, that um, there would be sort of collegiality between them and a warmth between them. I thought it was interesting when we saw them first meet, guys. Did you see there was some 
physical touching mm-hmm. yeah. and embrace. And do you all remember when Michelle Obama uh, had the gall, apparently, to put her hand on the small of the back of the queen mm. in 2009? And there was all this outrage in the press. The queen, of course, uh, it, said it was she, no big deal. She was totally cool totally with Totally cool with it. And by the way, they had their arms around each other. And I talked yeah. to two people who were right in front of them and said that they, it really started when they were comparing their but shoes. It dominated, like, Dave right. yeah. yeah. Coverage, yeah. And, yeah, like, that was here, the that was gets pretty. out and immediately just grabs the king by his arm. And uh, yeah. That will likely not generate the same exactly. amount of coverage. <laughs> and we always look at the body language, though, right, and how they present. I mean, if Biden, correct me if I'm wrong, he did not bow to Queen Elizabeth. No, he didn't. And to be fair, bowing is optional. Right, it has right. been. But he he had a very warm exchange with them. And, and not, so his mother told him not to bow to the queen. He yes, yes. Right. But I think... He, Which fed into what Alex was talking about and the perception of whether mm-hmm. or not Biden is, because of his Irish roots, was not. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Max, but I, I think ask, he's putting what, that aside. I yeah. think this is much, much more uh, important. Max, I want to ask you, you know, as we as we watch President Biden and King Charles walk people through what we're seeing right now, people might have some memories of what President Trump uh, did something similar in a different location. Obviously, what what, what are these two uh, actually doing right now? Uh, well, this is just an inspection of the guard. It's just a tradition that they have there at Windsor to invite a foreign head of state to inspect um, the guard that's there to protect our head of state. So it's, a, it's seen as a big honour. As you say, Trump uh, struggled with that because he didn't quite know how to walk along the line. And the Queen wasn't guiding him properly, to be fair, because it was always Prince Philip previously who had done that and he had uh, passed on at that time. But it's interesting hearing your debate about Ireland because certainly here in the UK, um, uh, Biden has been touted as an anti-Brinit anti-British president because he spent so much time focusing on the on Ireland, which is, of course, legitimate because he identifies as a, being of Irish descent. But uh, at a time when there was a huge row about Brexit and the uh, exit agreements between the US, uh, between the UK and Ireland, and, it were, you know, they were concerned that they were President Biden was favouring the Irish side rather than the British side in those debates. So that's certainly a tension here in the UK, one of the many tensions, frankly, in the US-UK relationship right now. So this body language, what we're seeing here, very important to show in images that the two heads of state do have a good chemistry and are getting on. And to be fair to Biden, he has a very good chemistry as well with Rishi Sunak, the British Prime Minister, but they have some quite fundamental differences of opinion on how to handle the war in Ukraine currently. Uh, but, you know, I don't think they're going to go there uh, in these discussions. They're going to keep it, as Sally says, to environment. Max, can I, you know, it's interesting because the president also has English roots, um, which, yeah, right. which the English uh, British uh, politicians often try and point out when they get a little frustrated about uh, his uh, very close ties and very publicly close ties. Uh, with Ireland, but you mentioned the body language, the relationship between the two. You and Sally have both been talking about the, the substance of this discussion in this meeting itself. Do you see this as an opportunity for President Biden to try and kind of utilize this meeting for political or policy purposes? And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense uh, or, or in a just a surface-based sense, but actually on trying to move the ball forward on climate goals or trying to move the ball forward perhaps uh, given what's coming in terms of the substance of, of the Ukraine issue as they head into a NATO summit? Yeah, well, I think uh, certainly in, in terms of, you know, climate, you know, 
having traveled with Charles around the world, he's certainly seen as a legitimate pioneer on that climate issue. And he's hugely well connected with that world. He's very close to John Kerry. I've been told that they speak regularly about climate issues. And this is something that, you know, this is an opportunity for President Biden to show I am in tune with the climate issues with one of the world's leading pioneers. And for Charles, frankly, uh, someone that can do something about the climate issue is President Biden. So he can also show that he's working with a key player in that space. Uh, King Charles raised some eyebrows when he talked about the unprovoked um, attack on Ukraine from Russia because King Charles wouldn't normally get involved in an issue like that when he's meant to, you know, represent um, UK around the world. And one day we'll have to represent the UK and Russia as well if those relations get back to normal. Um, and there's fundamental problems there with that Ukraine issue. And they've only bubbled up in the recent weeks. And they are that President Biden reportedly rejected Britain's choice for the head of NATO. Uh, the UK wants Ukraine brought into NATO more quickly than the US. And in Britain, cluster bombs are illegal. They cannot, would never, ever sell them. And it's pretty clear that Rishi Sunak disagrees with President Biden on that issue. And you look at King Charles's, you know, humanitarian work, I can't imagine he would ever support the use of cluster bombs. I think the best way of dealing that with that in a monarchy situation is to avoid the topic altogether yeah. and stick to climate, Completely. which is risky enough <laughs> because many people see it as political anyway. All right. Thanks so much, Max. We're going to circle back with you right after this quick break as we watch the pop and circle and circumstance at Windsor Castle play out on this Monday morning. We'll be back. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Oh, good Monday morning, everyone. I'm Phil Mattingly here in D.C. Pamela Brown is with me. There is a lot of news happening right now. We've been following a lot of it live. We're going to keep following it live. President Biden meeting right now with King Charles at Windsor Castle on the eve of the high stakes summit with NATO leaders in Lithuania. We're going to take you live to England. And the Kremlin is now claiming that Vladimir Putin personally met with the mercenary leader accused of staging a rebellion in Russia. This is surprising news this morning. Uh, this meeting allegedly happened just days after the mutiny, but the mercenary chief's fate and his whereabouts, that's still a mystery. And deadly flash flooding drenching New York, but the threat? It's not over yet. More than 25 million Americans are under flood alerts as the slow-moving storm pushes north. This hour, CNN This Morning starts right now. And good morning, everybody. It is happening right now. President Biden is in the midst of his meeting with King Charles at Windsor Castle. You saw the meeting just a short while ago. This meeting happening on the eve of a critical summit with NATO leaders. Yeah. Noted just moments ago. Yeah, the warm embrace it. there between the two men. The, the president arrived, inspected the honor guard. It is the first time the king and President Biden have met face to face since Charles ascended the throne. They are set to discuss climate change and clean energy. And tomorrow, Russia's war in Ukraine will take center stage when the NATO allies meet in Lithuania. Max Voster is live at Windsor Castle. Max, what is the significance of President Biden stopping in England before the NATO summit? 
Well, it's, it's always an opportunity that American presidents like to take up and um, see, be seen amongst all of that splendor, to be seen on the international stage. In the past, it would have been with the Queen, of course, who was this towering figure on the international stage, the longest serving head of state. Now it's King Charles at the beginning, really, of his monarchy and his opportunity to show how he's doing things slightly differently. So as you say, they are going to discuss climate change and going to have a meeting about that, which in itself was very unusual because Queen Elizabeth never really discussed what was going to be discussed in those meetings. Uh, Charles is handling things differently and wants to work with one of the key uh, figures who can actually have an impact on climate change, the President of the United States, to discuss that issue. Uh, the key thing about this, probably from our end, is that everything went very smoothly. The two men appeared to get on very well. This is all about re reiterating the long-term, strong, as the Brits would call it, special relationship between the US and the UK. The US is by far the most important bilateral partner for the UK, uh, partner for the UK in the world. It's really important that we can solidify that relationship with the US, whilst Rishi Sunak is dealing with some prickly... Uh, prickly issues, really, in that, particularly in the, uh, how they're handling the war in Ukraine. Uh, political issues, I mean, you could argue climate has become a political issue as well around the world, but this is something Charles is not going to let up on. Uh, in the past, these moments have been a bit awkward for President Trump, for example, getting a bit lost, uh, but Charles very much in control of this moment, uh, showing the inspection of the guard, allowing President Biden to inspect that guard, and uh, it all went pretty smoothly, so now they've gone in for tea and for a discussion about climate. All right, Max Foster, we're going to continue to check in with you through the hour. And new this morning, we are now hearing from the Kremlin that Yevgeny Prigozhin met with President Vladimir Putin after his short-lived mutiny at the end of June. Remember that attempted coup? Well, we're told the meeting took place on June 29th. That was five days after the rebellion. CNN senior international correspondent Fred Plykin joins us now. Fred, uh, this is a bit of a surprise, right? I mean, what can we read from this? Mm -hmm. Well, it is, uh, that's to say the least, it's a bit of a surprise. And I think it is something that certainly shows that uh, Wagner, the Wagner group, Yevgeny Prigozhin and his fighters certainly are of huge significance uh, to Vladimir Putin. If he was willing to meet with Yevgeny Prigozhin just five days after that, that mutiny. So obviously one of the things that we heard from the Kremlin today is no one really knew where Yevgeny Prigozhin was. People thought that he might have been in Belarus. Then of course, the Belarusian leader, Alexander Lukashenko, he told our own Matthew Chance last week that uh, actually Yevgeny Prigozhin was back in St. Petersburg in Russia. So now the Kremlin coming out and saying that on June 29th, so just a couple of days, five days after that mutiny, Yevgeny Prigozhin and 35 commanders, as the Kremlin put it, were inside the Kremlin. Now, apparently, Vladimir Putin gave his own assessment of what they call the special military operation, which is obviously Russia's war in Ukraine. But then also about the mutiny itself. And then also, apparently, this according to the Kremlin, offered his thoughts on possible further deployments. Now, the interesting thing about all this is they said that 35 commanders took part, including Yevgeny Prigozhin. They did not say whether people from Russia's defense ministry took part. Of course, one of the things that we know is that Yevgeny Prigozhin was on his way to Moscow on June 24th specifically to try and go after the defense minister and Vladimir Putin's top general. So obviously all of this directly uh, also in defiance of Vladimir Putin. Now we're learning that Yevgeny Prigozhin was in fact in the Kremlin. It certainly seems to show that despite the fact that Yevgeny Prigozhin has now been discredited on Russian state media pretty much since that happened, the fighters that he commanded and controlled still seem very important for the Kremlin leader, guys. Yeah, no question yes. about that. Fred Plekin, thanks so much.
And we want to bring in now CNN security analyst Beth Sanner and Colonel Cedric Layton is back with us. Beth, I want to start with you um, because I, I'm kind of mind blown, to be honest yeah, with you, and, yeah, and I'm not the expert that you are about all this. But Fred makes the great point. Over the course of the last several weeks, you've seen uh, Prigozhin kind of completely undercut on Russia state media. You saw President Putin's statement uh, when he finally started speaking after the mutiny, really attacking uh, the, the idea of it and the, the actions that were taken. What do you make of the fact that Prigozhin was in was meeting with President Putin just five days after the mutiny? Well, you know, I think this shows uh, another step in the Kremlin plan to deal with Prigozhin in this kind of post-mutiny environment. I think they have three things that are going on right here and that we're seeing unfold. One is that they're trying to change the narrative and discrediting Prigozhin and getting leverage over the still popular figure is the first part of this plan. The second part is to wrest control over as much of Wagner as they can, because Wagner's extremely important. So they took over, for example, the internet, um, the disinformation arm, the IRA, that still promotes disinformation worldwide, the Syria campaign. And then the third is what we saw, I think, in this meeting with Putin. And that is to figure out how do we rebrand and reshape Wagner elements, the ones that we still need, says Putin, the ones that we can't yet get rid of or maybe never can um, because they're so important. So I think that's what we're seeing here unfold. All right, Colonel Leighton, I want to bring you in to get your thoughts on what it, this says about Putin, that he would meet with Prigozhin mere days after the attempted coup. Yeah, to me, it seems, Pam, like th this is a sense of, of his weakness. We're getting a sense that he's looking at things that he needs to change in order to maintain his power. It's also a situation, I think, where uh, Prigozhin either has something on Putin or he's got enough leverage where he can actually control some of uh, not only the narrative, but also what Putin does next. Think about what uh, they have, for example, in Africa. You know, you've got the Wagner Group all over Africa. You've got them in Syria. That's a huge arm of Russian foreign policy that's sitting right there. And if that is somehow stopped or doesn't work as well as it once did, that creates a real problem for the Kremlin. And Putin can't afford to have that problem in addition to the problems that he has in Ukraine right now. If your friend's close, your enemy's closer, right? Exactly, yeah, exactly. Sure. And Beth, that kind of brings me to my next question. You know, our Ben Wiedemann called this kind of a soap opera, a little bit of an as the world turns to some degree as we watch uh, from our position. If you're U.S. intelligence at this point in time, how are you kind of watching, analyzing what's been happening and trying to draw some conclusions about what this may say about next steps for President Putin and Russia? Well, you break it down into the things that matter to U.S. interests. And I think about this kind of in concentric rings. You know, the first part of it is, you know, how does this affect Putin? And I think that, you know, while it shows some weakness in, in terms of the symbiotic relationship, it it. It, it doesn't necessarily threaten Putin in the near term. And so I think that, you know, he actually is fairly in control at home in the wake of this. But as you move out this concentric rings to the Ukraine war and then really to relationships, um, China, the relationship with China and how allies think about it. And then like this foreign policy security arm in Africa, Wagner, these things start to weaken as the ripples um, kind of go out on these concentric rings. So as an intel aid, uh, officer, you break these down and you start figuring out um, 
you know, what are the leverage points to not only understand it, but to take advantage of it. All right, Beth Sander, thank you so much. Carter Layton, stick around. Lots more to discuss. For more now on President Biden's trip overseas, let's bring back CNN royal commentator Sally Bedell-Smith, CNN contributor, staff writer for The New Yorker, and Biden biographer Evan Osnos, and CNN political analyst and national politics reporter for The New York Times, Ested Herndon. All right, so as we speak, uh, King Charles, President Biden, they are meeting what are you looking for out of this meeting, Sally Bedell-Smith? What do you think is different about this meeting compared to the Queen's, the late Queen's meetings with former U.S. presidents? Well, the Queen's last meeting with, with uh, President Biden was 45 minutes of pleasantry. Uh, she asked him what he thought of Xi and what he thought of Putin, but we don't know what he said and we don't know what she said. Um, in this instance, it is the first time that I, that as a monarch, um, there has been a specific agenda. Um, Prince Charles is, or King Charles is very experienced with this. Back in 2007, for example, he started a rainforest initiative and he had conferences bringing together businesses, philanthropies. He got commitments from governments, $250 million uh, from Sweden and uh, other uh, Scandinavian countries to put money into South America to prevent them from cutting down trees. So, in the, you know, in the past, he has focused on very specific actions. That is what he is doing today. He is, uh, he and Joe Biden are asking uh, financial institutions, big businesses. I mean, a lot of businesses now have ESG. They are very much on the page of trying to mitigate uh, climate change. And so I think we're going to have these people meeting with John Kerry and with Grant Shapps, who is the uh, environmental minister for the UK. And so what we're looking at is an initiative by Prince Charles and something that he's very, very um, good at. And, in, and it's being backed by the government. Um, when he was the Prince of Wales, he did things that were sometimes contrary to the government, but this is very much um, in, in sync with what Rishi Sunak's government is trying to do. Evan, can I, on, I, I want to spin forward into the NATO meeting in a second, but, um, which is obviously of huge consequence. But sometimes in our business, we try desperately to, to draw parallels. Mm. Um, and uh, sometimes we fail miserably uh, at that. You're a, you're a big time magazine writer and, and book writer, so you never fail. Um, <laughs> but everything time. that Sally is describing, I find so fascinating of two individuals who throughout the course of their yeah. career were sometimes dismissed, sometimes scoffed at, never thought that they would necessarily get to uh, the place that they always seemed destined to go, or at least in their minds were destined to go. Now they're here at this moment. Um, Describe yeah. that dynamic. No, I think you're absolutely right, Phil. You know, these are two gentlemen of a certain age who have spent a long time thinking about what they would do when they found themselves at the top of the mountain, getting the job that they've always wanted. Here they find themselves in, in King Charles's case at the age of 74. Of course, President Biden is 80. And they come to it with a sense that they have some wisdom to impart, but also a little a chip on their shoulder a bit about the fact that it took as long as it did to get there. But the meaningful fact is you have a President Biden who believes that climate is one of the issues on which he made an impact over the course of the last couple of years. They talk about the Inflation Reduction Act being part of his legacy. And of course, King Charles 
is, has been talking about climate for five decades. So they have a meeting of the minds on yeah, substance, definitely. but as you say, also on life experience. Yeah. 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 And of course, this trip uh, comes ahead of the big NATO summit in Lithuania. The president will be traveling there um, shortly after his, his meeting there with King Charles. And I'm wondering, instead, if you could just set the table for us, the main, the big issues um, that President Biden will have to tackle with the allies at this NATO summit. I mean, I think that that is uh, really what he's starting here in England. We had this meeting with the prime ministers to get the U.S. and the U.K. on the same page heading into that summit. And what we hear from the White House is that, the, the, is that they're going to try to make sure to shore up the relationship, to make sure that there is still a willingness to support. You know, there was the uh, investment into the ammunition recently that was controversial. I think the White House is going to try to make sure that them and Europe are on the same page. I was in Munich at the security conference earlier this year, and there was a real sense, a palpable sense that this is an important year to really turn the page on the war in Ukraine. If they're at the same point next year at this point, if they think that the the support in their own countries maybe have to shift. And so I think the U.S. is going to have to push on the kind of offensive right now, and they're going to try to make sure that them and Europe are on the same page right now because uh, the, the political picture looks a little murkier come next year. I think that's why you're seeing the investment in the ammunition right now, and that's why you're seeing the White House use this U.K. meeting as the kind of first step to make sure that they have a Europe that's on the same page uh, going into what is going to be a very consequential year, for sure, uh, especially before an election. The White House is thinking about this next year as a way to, as a, as a key moment for the war, because they don't want there to be a pushback domestically on the amount of investment they're doing over in Europe. And so they're going to hope that this year really turns the page on the war so that they're, so that they're able to re- make a political pitch come in 2024. All right, everyone, we appreciate your time. Stay with us, many of you. Um, there's about, Pamela and I, I think, have about 100 more questions for each of you <laughs> on so all many. of these things. I never get to all of them. Um, so we will definitely be getting back to you guys. Thank you guys very yes. much for joining us. Also this morning, parts of New York recovering from a once-in-a-thousand-year flood event will bring you the latest on the damage. And studies show red flag laws work to prevent potential violence. But in some cases, like the one we're about to show you, they're not being enforced. Why one grieving mother says that can have deadly consequences. I want this story to be told. And hopefully it it will save another mother that's going through the same thing I'm going through. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. Right now, more than 25 million people across the Northeast are bracing for more flooding after a powerful storm drenched New York with staggering amounts of rain and deadly flash floods. Just north of New York City, parts of the Hudson Valley saw once-in-a-millennium levels of rainfall. This was the scene in Highland Falls, New York, where a woman was reportedly swept away by raging floodwaters and drowned while trying to evacuate her home with her dog. This powerful storm is now bearing down on New England as it slowly pushes north. Pola Sandoval is live for us on the ground in Rockland County, New York. Pola, you're near one of the hardest hit areas. What have you seen throughout the course of the morning? Well, finally, a bit of a break in the clouds here, Phil, but overnight, some truly stunning pictures and videos that have emerged from not just here in Rockland County, but neighboring Orange County, which we can't really take you there to because of uh, the, the roadblock that you'll see here over my shoulder. I'm in touch with Orange County officials who tell me that overnight, it really was a just completely chaotic situation with swift water rescues happening, uh, parts of roads being essentially swept away. And so today they are basically reassessing the situation. One of the hardest hit areas that you mentioned there, the town 
town of Highlands, where Orange County officials tell me, unfortunately, one woman, a young woman who was in the process of evacuating her home with her pet, lost her footing in floodwaters, swept away into a ravine, and sadly did not survive yesterday. There is perhaps a glimmer of hope here, as officials saying that uh, all the rest of the residents seem to be accounted for, so Orange County officials do not expect the need for any further rescues that we will certainly have to see throughout the course of the day. The huge issue right now, though, for a majority of folks here, and all you have to do is look behind me, is uh, going to be travel travel, uh, travel trouble, I should say. Uh, this interstate parkway, you see traffic backed up for as far as the eye can see. Officials are going to continue to keep that blocked off until they can determine that it's actually safe to actually travel through the Hudson River Valley, which is a very short drive from New York City. So that really is the extent of the impact is still some 25 million Americans are still under some form of flood alerts. This time, though, north of New York State. Phil? All right, Polo, keep us posted. Thanks so much. Well, new details this morning about the deadly mass shooting in Philadelphia over the 4th of July weekend. Officials say the suspect actually shot and killed one victim nearly two days before going on a rampage through the neighborhood, killing four more people. Police say the attack was, quote, obviously planned and that the suspect had been displaying abnormal behavior for quite a while. Gun violence has killed more than 22,000 people in the United States this year alone, according to the Gun Violence Archive. Now some lawmakers and advocates, they are pushing hard for more red flag laws, which could help keep guns out of the hands of potentially dangerous people. But some states that already have those laws in place are struggling to use them. I sat down with a mother who was now mourning because of the trouble enforcing the law. Vanessa Salgado's nightmare began last spring in her Albuquerque home. He was molesting my daughter. Salgado learned her live-in boyfriend, Bradley Wallen, had been sexually assaulting her 16-year-old daughter, Alexia, for years. She called the sheriff's department. We're going to try to get an emergency restraining order. On the body cam video, you can hear Alexia telling deputies about an argument. He was telling me that I had been acting like I had an attitude towards him and I couldn't keep it in and I said it's because you sexually assaulted me and then he got out of his car and he admitted what he did he told me it was wrong weeks later Wallen spotted Alexia's car at a shopping center he shot and killed her and her cousin Mario Salgado and then turned the gun on himself it was Mother's Day no parent wants to lose a child no parent wants to see their child gone before them. Honestly, I wish she would have took me, let her live. Vanessa says she had told law enforcement Wallen owned guns. The restraining order she filed against him lists two firearms. And I literally opened up the drawer that had the guns in it and showed the officer. And did the officer say anything about whether those guns could be taken away? No. These two were inseparable. What Vanessa didn't know then is that New Mexico passed a red flag law, which allows firearms to be temporarily taken away from those deemed dangerous to themselves or others. Deputies escorted Wallen as he retrieved his weapons from the home along with his belongings. I said I was concerned he possibly might commit suicide. So you told law enforcement you were worried he would commit suicide? Yes, ma'am. That alone should have allowed Vanessa or the police to file what's called an extreme risk firearm protection order or gun restraining order. But she was never told of that option. I just wish I would have known. 
so I would have had the right path to protect my daughter and my nephew. The system failed on, on all facets. Sheriff John Allen wasn't in office last year when the murders happened, but he says there was a breakdown in the process. She did convey that he could harm himself. That seems to be an example of when guns should be taken away under this law, right? Correct. So was it a mistake? They weren't? I don't think it was communicated correctly. The information wasn't relayed to the district attorney's office enough, and that could be from our detectives, that could be from family, that could be from witnesses, that could be from victims. What happened to the Salgado family is a key example of how difficult it can be to implement these life-saving laws in some states. Records obtained by CNN show New Mexico's red flag law has only been used about 30 times since it took effect in 2020. As a comparison, Florida's similar law has been utilized more than 11,000 times since it was enacted in 2018. It's difficult for people to understand how to enforce the law. Education and training hasn't gone around the state like it should have. Of the 21 states that have red flag laws on the books, New Mexico is by far the most gun violent. It's a blue state that is mostly rural, yet it has the third highest gun mortality rate per capita in the U.S. Even with that violence, New Mexico sheriffs petitioned against the passage of the law and created Second Amendment sanctuary counties where it wouldn't be enforced. A judge weighs every decision, but because red flag laws are relatively new, there tends to be misinformation. It's not law enforcement filing in a vacuum. There is a judge looking at the, the facts of the case and then making a determination based on that. Studies show red flag laws can work to defuse potential violence. The key is making sure people know about them. I just want to have a voice for my kids and I want this story to be told. And hopefully it, it will save another mother that's going through the same thing I'm going through. I want to thank Vanessa for sharing her story with us, the courage to sit down and share, um, given the death of her daughter and nephew. And experts say red flag laws are legally sound because they're based on domestic violence laws. A recent Johns Hopkins study showed red flag laws temporarily disarmed 660 people in six states who threatened to kill multiple people. Of course, no one is suggesting that all of those people would have gone on to commit murder, but experts say if even one life is saved, the laws are worth enforcing. Well, the U.S. Marine is taken into custody after a missing 14-year-old girl was found at a Marine Corps base in Camp Pendleton in California. San Diego County Sheriff's Department says the girl's grandmother reported her missing last month. She was found at the base north of San Diego two weeks later. CNN National Correspondent Camila Bernal joins us live from Camp Pendleton. And Camila, what else have you learned about what actually happened here? Hey, Phil. So we're learning that the Marine was taken into custody for questioning. That's after that 14-year-old girl was found here at the barracks on base. That happened on June 28th. And it's according to the Marine Corps. They released a statement. And I want to read part of it because what they're saying here is that this command takes this matter and all allegations very seriously. The incident is under investigation and we will continue to cooperate with NCIS and appropriate authorities. Now, the NCIS 
NCIS is the Naval Criminal Investigative Service, and they declined to comment, citing respect for the investigative process. But the San Diego County uh, Sheriff's Office did release sort of a timeline of what had happened here. They said the 14-year-old's grandmother uh, went to authorities and reported the girl missing on June 13th, but she told deputies that her granddaughter had actually ran away from home on June 9th. That's when authorities then put her name on multiple missing persons databases, but it wasn't until the 28th that military police actually found the 14-year-old here on base. Detectives interviewed the girl. She was offered resources, and she was reunited with her grandmother, but there are still a lot of questions here in this investigation, and we will have to wait for the NCIA to give us the results of the investigation, but as of now, a lot of questions here on base, Phil. All right, indeed. Camila Bernal, thanks for, for your reporting. And we are live at Windsor Castle, where President Biden is meeting with King Charles ahead of the NATO summit. We're going to take you there on this busy Monday morning. Up next, stay with us. You're looking live. Pictures of Windsor Castle. President Biden currently meeting with King Charles III, the first engagement between the two since the royal coronation in May. You see the two of them earlier in the Guard of Honor. Earlier this morning, the president sat down with UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak ahead of Tuesday's NATO summit in Lithuania. CNN's Max Foster joins us live from Windsor. Nick Robertson is in London, and Estead Herndon is back with us here in Washington, D.C. Uh, Nick, I want to start with you, because the White House has been downplaying uh, some uneasiness uh, we've heard from allies about the uh, decision to send cluster munitions to Ukraine. Here's what National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan had to say. We have heard nothing from people saying this cast doubt on our commitment, this cast doubt on coalition unity, or this cast doubt on our belief that the United States is playing a vital and positive role as leader of this coalition in Ukraine. The context, of course, being that more than 100 countries, including the UK, uh, are signatories to a ban on using cluster munitions. I guess the question is, does this create any real friction for the alliance heading into this NATO summit, or is the National Security Advisor correct? Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because just last year, the UK was at, actually held the presidency, the rotating presidency of uh, that convention. Um, it does, it is a little awkward in some ways. And, and I think we got a sense of that over the weekend when Rishi Sunak put out that press release uh, saying that, um, you know, the UK is a signatory and these are the reasons why and this is what we're not going to, and this is what we're not going to do and this is why we don't do it uh, as part of that convention. His press spokesman this afternoon, after meeting with President Biden, said actually Rishi Sunak, in the format of that tea in the gardens at the back of number 10 here, did raise the issue, did say he put forward, um, as he is obliged to do, per the convention, per the convention to discourage the use of, of, uh, of uh, cluster munitions. So it, it does seem that, the, that this did come up for a conversation. But I think the tagline to what the press secretary said at the end of, at the end of that was um, they understand, the British understand, that this was a tough decision for President Biden. So I don't think this is going to break any bridges. Um, there's certainly the obligation on the British Prime Minister to do this. He was always going to be questioned about it. It was one of the first questions uh, to his press secretary following the meeting, um, and he, he raised it. So I think it does tell you um, it, it's an issue, but not a massive one. 
I'm going to bring in Max. Uh, you've been there at Windsor Castle following everything with this meeting between President Biden and King Charles. And we know they're discussing climate change. That is a, a centerpiece of the agenda today. But do we expect any concrete, tangible uh, steps to come out of this this meeting on climate as it relates to climate change, Max? Well, it's possible, isn't it? It's interesting that King Charles is getting a lot more time with President Biden than Rishi Sunak did. Uh, they have a huge shared interest in the climate. So, as I understand, at the moment they're having tea. I'm sure they're discussing climate. Possibly some level of Ukraine as well, because King Charles has voiced his um, support for Ukraine in the conflict against Russia. But I think it'll be kept very superficial. Much more detail on climate. Um, and they've got this meeting with a group of philanthropists and finance experts trying to deal with climate change in the developing world and emerging markets. So they're going to brief Charles and President Biden on the conclusions of their meetings. So they will have some suggestions for change. So there could be something concrete that comes out of that. You can imagine one of the pioneers in climate change, King Charles, and the President of the United uh, States. If they supported some changes there, that could be quite significant, actually. Uh, we're also going to um, probably get some images of King Charles showing uh, President Biden some American artifacts from the Royal Collection. Uh, so they're having quite an afternoon of it here in Windsor. And you've got that uh, big red carpet moment as well, where President Biden was alighted, uh, invited to inspect the Guard of Honour. So some pomp and pageantry to go with this royal event. Yep. You know, said we'd been talking earlier about how these are two men of a certain age that yeah. have kind of followed similar career trajectories, though very different on many levels. Um, the issue of age is obviously one that kind of hangs over everything President Biden does uh, as the oldest president uh, in, in history, both this morning and tomorrow morning, mm -hmm. the morning after that to some degree as well. But he was actually asked about this by Fareed Zakaria in the interview, uh, the exclusive interview Fareed had. I want you to take a listen to it. Yeah. I think we're at an inflection point. I think the world is changing, and I think I... Uh, there is one thing that comes with age, if you've been honest about it your whole life, and that is some wisdom. I think we're on the cusp of being able to make significant positive changes in the world. Really, honest to God, do. This is something that his advisors have kind of made clear behind the scenes, right? That this is a double-edged sword. Yes, age is an issue, but experience matters as well. And there's probably no place that he's demonstrated that experience matters more so than on the world stage. Yeah. What's your read on that? Absolutely. I mean, when I was looking at those images from London and thinking about him going to Lithuania for this summit, I was thinking about how this experience gives Biden the kind of unique ability to thread a really tough needle on this issue. And you've had kind of universal praise from him, from the Democrats, and I think some Republicans who have acknowledged that this is kind of a role that maybe only Biden could do. And so I think as we head into the election, when age certainly, to your point, will be a concern, this is what the White House is going to try the pitch, that this is the positive of that age, that he has the experience and that he has been able to show that, particularly on this issue. The question is whether voters are valuing that in the same type of way. You know, when we were talking to people about how they feel about Biden, there's no, there, there wasn't dissatisfaction with his actions as president. It was a kind of uh, implicit feeling that they felt like he was supposed to be a bridge to a next generation and maybe that in, in running for re-election that he's kind of breaking that promise, right? And so that has nothing to do with the facts or the substance of his actions. And I think that that's what you're really going to see as the tension for the next year. There's a real benefit to experience as they can specifically point to on something like Russia's war. But there's also going to be the question of whether voters are valuing that in the same way that the White House or diplomatic communities are who have given him kind of universal praise for the tough line that he's walked on this issue. Yeah. Bridge 
got four years longer. Yeah, to yeah. Degree, the bridge right? is so slightly getting bigger. All right, guys, thank you very much. Instead, thank thanks you. for coming in, buddy. Thank Appreciate you. It. Appreciate it. Well, rising ticket costs and your collisions on the runway, just how turbulent has air travel gotten over the years? Harry Hinton is next. He's up next with this morning's there number. There he is. There he is, There's the one and guy. only Harry. We'll be with you soon, Harry. Haircut still looks good. <laughs> From roller coaster ticket prices to near collisions on the runways, the airline industry has been seeing plenty of turbulence and not just in the skies, right? So what's ahead for flyers? CNN senior data reporter Harry Enton is here with this morning's number. All right. Good morning, Harry. What is it? Good morning, Pam. All right. This morning's number is four. Why? Airline fares in the last 10 years are actually down 4%. It's one of the best bargains you can get. That's even as the price of the average good has risen by 31%. And I know this because I just recently flew to Bermuda, and it turns out that the fares this year were cheaper than the fares were last year. You could go to Bermuda round trip from New York for less than $200. So the fact is airline ticket fares are one of the best bargains around at this particular point. I, Phil, I have Pam? to verify that. I don't know. Less yeah, than $200? I don't, I don't actually believe this, but also yeah. like highfalutin vacation. I know. Let me just Harry, throw that casual throw people. in. Yeah. All right, Harry, earlier, <laughs> earlier this year, we heard a lot about near collisions at the airport. What are we seeing now? Yeah, all right, Phil. So remember that we ran all of those stories about all those near collisions but look, in January to February of this year, there were five of them that the FAA graded at least a significant potential for an accident. But guess what's happened over the last few months? From March to May, look at this, zero. So it turns out that as we're getting out of the COVID era and we're getting more and more passengers, more and more flights, the airlines are adjusting. And the fact is those friendly skies are becoming even friendlier. They're becoming safer, considerably safer than they were at the beginning of the year. You mentioned the COVID era. How is the airline industry doing overall after problems during COVID? Yeah. So look, airline passengers, right? We're back, baby. We're back. That's exactly what I would say. Airline passengers through July 6th. Look at this. 426 million. That's way up from where we were in 2020 when it was just 182 million. And we are back to that pre-COVID level baseline when it was 426 million. So we're matching it perfectly. So there are a lot of people like me, perhaps they're not going to Bermuda. Maybe they're going to a domestic location. I don't know, like Huntsville, Alabama, where I can visit my dear Aunt Clara. Guys? Trying to balance yourself out there. Bermuda, Huntsville, working. Alabama. Nice try, Gary. Nice try. But Plus, you know what? I just got back actually from California. Not to, you know, throw that in because California is yeah. great. But um, it was, I mean, the airports were packed. Yeah. So I'm not surprised to see those numbers. I'm not surprised. But I do feel like Harry's trying to challenge Pete Muntean uh, yeah. in the aviation correspondence yeah. space. And I just want to tell you, Harry, no shot, man. You don't have the hair. Like, you've got good hair, but you don't have Pete Montine hair. I just want to put that out there right I'm now. Pete, no I got of course, that is a key criteria for covering airlines. <laughs> I'm nowhere near as good looking as Pete, but he thankfully allows me to play in his space from time to time. He's a good colleague like that. a generous that. guy. All Thanks, right, buddy. Harry. Thanks so much. Great to see you. Be well. Well, it's the Influencer Back to Energy drink that's flying off the shelves. Fastest growing sports drink in history. So do your kids drink this? Apparently this is really popular amongst kids. And now some lawmakers are calling on the FDA to investigate it. We're going to tell you why up next.
This morning, a popular energy drink is under scrutiny. Prime is the beverage brand founded by YouTube stars Logan Paul and KSI. Prime Energy is especially popular with kids, even though there is a warning label that says it is not recommended for anyone under age 18. Senator Chuck Schumer is now calling on the FDA to investigate the drink over its high caffeine and the way it markets itself. A lot of parents may never heard of it, but their kids have, because Prime is engaged in a vast advertising campaign aimed at kids, even though kids aren't supposed to drink a drink with this much caffeine. Well, CNN has reached out to the FDA and Prime for a comment on its energy drink. Not yet received a response. We should note the company also makes a Prime Hydrate beverage, which does not include caffeine. Joining us now is CNN medical correspondent Meg Terrell and CNN business and politics correspondent Vanessa Yurkevich. Meg, I want to start with you. You know, the Senate Majority Leader is saying kids shouldn't drink the amount of caffeine in Prime. How much caffeine does this drink have and how much is safe for kids to consume? Yeah, so this uh, drink has about 200 milligrams of caffeine in a 12-ounce can. And to try to put that into some context, that's about two bottles of Red Bull. Those are smaller bottles, about 8.4 ounces in a Red Bull can, um, or about six cans of Coke. So uh, that's in one of these cans. And according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, really kids shouldn't have any caffeine. Some pediatricians say for kids who are you know 12 and older, maybe up to 100 milligrams per day, that's a soda or two. Uh, for adults, the FDA usually says about 400 milligrams per day generally doesn't affect people. But for kids, the warnings are, you know, this can affect their sleep. It can cause dehydration, higher blood pressure, anxiety. And there are concerns about too much caffeine's impact on their development in terms of uh, neurological development and their cardiovascular systems, guys. You see Chuck Schumer really taking aim at the marketing here. So, Vanessa, on that note, how is Prime cornering the market and getting the attention of kids? Well, Prime really exploded on social media. On TikTok alone, they have 3.4 million followers, uh, 42 million likes. This is also driven in part by Logan Paul, the co-founder who has millions of followers himself. He does a lot of the advertising for the brand. But it's important to note that this is the energy drink side of the brand. There's also the sports drink side. But the energy market is huge. In 2022 alone, sales were at about 58 billion. Billion dollars, uh, billion dollars. This year, we're going to see about $62 billion globally and projected in the next four years, $83 billion. And most of those sales are happening right here in North America. Another way that this brand has gotten sort of their face on the map is they're sponsoring sports teams. They're sponsoring the LA Dodgers. They're sponsoring Arsenal, uh, the soccer club Barcelona, also Base Sports Group, which is a sponsorship uh, group for youth sports. Uh, they are in good company. You have Adidas also sponsoring Arsenal. You have Nike and Coca-Cola sponsoring Barcelona. So clearly they are trying to make a play and get their name out there. And it seems to be working, guys. Yeah, it's not subtle. I'm slightly confused how you consume the energy drink because all the promos have them like pouring it on their, their heads. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Meg, I do think, in, on a serious note, some of the prime products say it's, quote, not recommended for children under 18. If you're the FDA and you're, you do actually take a look at this, is that enough? 
Well, it really depends, I think, from the FDA perspective, from what I've been hearing from experts this morning on whether they are hearing about instances of actual harm coming from this. I was talking with former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He pointed out when he was in the role, you know, he issued public health advisories around things like this. So that's just to let people know about the situation, basically put out a warning uh, and some information so that parents know about this. That is sort of a softer way of, of getting at the issue than actually taking any kind of enforcement action, which I'm hearing from experts is a much harder thing for the FDA to do here. But uh, really, it's, you know, is this actually causing harm? And the marketing, uh, the nature of it is that it's specifically bringing more children into the product. Yeah, it's becoming quite the status symbol among children, right, to have these drinks in hand. It's, it's no longer the shoes or whatever, you know, kids, popular on kids. It's about the drink. Uh, so this is really a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, Meg, Vanessa. We appreciate it. Thanks. Well, a historic first for professional baseball. Two college teammates, Bayou Bengals themselves, take spots one and two in the Major League Baseball draft. Big Paul's hand. Dylan. Welcome back. For the first time in history, two college teammates took the top two spots in the Major League Baseball draft. With the first pick of the 2023 MLB draft, the Pittsburgh Pirates pick Paul Skeen. The Washington Nationals select Dylan Love that. The two LSU players celebrated with family and friends as the announcements came in one after the other last night. Pitcher Paul Skeens and outfielder Dylan Cruz dominated college baseball this season. The two teammates eventually led the Tigers to a national championship just last month. Only two other times in history did two teammates make the top picks, both going one and three, which happened in 2011 and in 1978. Best wow. part about this story, Dylan Cruz, who was pick uh, number two, could have been a first-round pick out of high school. Decided not to go professional, decided to go to LSU, became the National Player of the Year, won a national championship, now the number two overall pick. Wow. Bet on himself. Bet on himself. So you know a thing That's or two awesome. about baseball? Maybe I've, it's because you were a baseball star in college. Star, definitely everyone. not in college. But played. <laughs> star. If any of my college <laughs> teammates saw so you humble. say I was a star don't in college, so they'd be humble, like, yeah, no, Phil. you weren't. No, you weren't. <laughs> All right. Well, we are keeping a close eye on the president's trip to Windsor Castle. He is meeting with King Charles at this hour. CNN News Central picks up coverage right now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash Country. Max subscription required.